back to 17. This was just a moment ago. Joe Sackick with an eight iron here at the par three. Uh oh. Yep. No. Yep. Come on. Yes. Oh. A million And welcome to episode number 31 of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. I'm the host. My co-host is Don Ross. How are you doing today, Don? I'm hot. Incredibly hot. It is a very hot and sticky July 19th, 2011 in Buffalo, New York. We're very glad you're with us today as we have another fantastic show planned. Stuart Mandel is going to make his debut on the Sportscasters. Stuart, of course has his own podcast and writes for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. We're very excited to have Stuart on because it's kind of a symbol of football coming back in a way. And not just, I don't mean the strike ending because we're going to talk college football with Stuart, but I mean it's getting to be football season again. And it's going to be time to really focus. And we're going to talk a lot about the upcoming college football season with Stuart. And I'm really excited about that. Also, we have John Wertheim, one of my favorite guests. John, of course, from Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated.com, the author of Scorecasting, which I think was the original book club book of the month. He's going to make his third appearance on the show, and I'm very excited to have John on. One thing that we've talked a lot about over the course of the last 30 episodes is Twitter. We haven't made, we haven't made any we haven't said anything that wouldn't lead you to believe that we don't use Twitter. We use it a lot. <laughs> we get a lot of our guests through Twitter. Right. And John wrote a really interesting article in Sports Illustrated a few weeks ago. And, you know, it's interesting. John's kind of like that, huh? He's one of these guests that just writes stuff that really creates a lot of thought. And then we want to talk to him. For instance, last time he was on, he had written that Tiki Barber article. Right, right. You know, and I wanted to jump right on the horn with him. And it was the same. I, I've been wanting to bring him on because he was at Wimbledon. And I was going to bring him on anyway. And then when I seen this Twitter article, I thought it'd be perfect. So he's going to talk to us about that. And then at the very end of the show, after pick four and everything, we have something really special. Uh, I have an obsession with Apple. That's probably another thing we haven't kept very quiet. <laughs> no, you're not shy about it. Uh, I love Apple. I love Apple's products. And we're going to talk with a senior writer at Macworld who is actually going to serve two purposes. He is in France. He lives in the French Alps. And he... He is going to give us a report on the Tour de France, something I, I don't know that we ever thought about really talking no, about much, but the race is at its critical stage now, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about his experiences with the Tour de France, meeting Lance Armstrong, things like that, and that's going to be at the very end of the show. We'll talk more about that later. A couple things before we get going. I want to wish a happy birthday to a real special guy to Don and I, and that's Josh Weller. It's actually Don's younger brother. That's right. Yep. He's going to be turning 21 this week. Yep. Tomorrow, I think. Tomorrow could be right. Uh, Josh, happy birthday. We love you. Hope you're enjoying your tours this summer. <laughs> Wherever he is. Wherever he may be. Also, I want to give a shout-out to one of our best listeners, Jimmy Brawley. He's filled in for Don a few times. Big Dallas Mavericks fan. And he actually wrote me a note earlier in the week to say that he's getting ready to start his first job in the real world, quote-unquote. So I want to wish him the best in his new career. And that's about it. Let's get going with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. 
One. Alrighty, I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Alright, if you were paying attention during the intro, uh, you may have heard Joe Sackick, uh, one of the most gentlemanly, uh, just good. Impossible not to like. Great wrist shot, maybe the best ever in hockey. Uh, you heard him. Make a $1 million hole-in-one. I'm sure there's professional golfers that have not hit hole-in-ones, but uh, Joe Sackett hits a $1 million hole-in-one at Tahoe at a, uh, the American Century Celebrity Golf Championship. He said, it's a shot you never imagined hitting. He said, I've never even been close before. And uh, I think I cut the video off before, but it's very visual anyway. But even the announcers say, I'm not sure he knows that went in yet. And he has someone yeah, it tells took him, him that a bit. it went in. Yeah, if you watch the video, and it is posted at Puck Daddy. My friends at the Puck Daddy blog had a nice little write-up about it. You can tell he doesn't, he doesn't realize it at first, and then he, he, his celebration is great. $1 million shot, $500,000 goes to charity. Yeah, Lance Armstrong. $5,000 goes to Joe Sackick. And, you know, that was worth more than the person who won the tournament. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. So congrats to Joe Sackick on an ace. Yeah, cool player doing a, doing a cool thing. And he had one of the all-time years when he went, won the Stanley Cup, won the Hart Trophy, won an Olympics, just did everything. And he's had one of those careers. Him and Steve Eiserman are hard to, to separate because right. they're so similar. They wear the same number, and they're just awesome leaders, awesome players. Love Joe Sackick. My first thing, Don, I got to... This is how I want to do this. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. So the women's soccer team, which we've been following along, we've been somewhat smitten with Alex Morgan. Right. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how there's this team in western New York called the Flash, and they have Marta. And we've talked a lot about this tournament. And I think we both had kind of bizarro Sunday a couple of days ago where we woke up, had breakfast, watched golf, right. ate lunch, watched women's soccer. Had dinner and then watched wrestling. Right? That was like <laughs> kind of like the average day for males right. on Sunday. Just I didn't see the wrestling. Kind part, of bizarre Sunday. So the women lose two, two to two is the final score, and then they end up losing, I guess three, three to one, one yep. in penalties. And my question to you, Don, is: Do you think that they choked, or do you think they lost? Because I do think there's a big difference. That's a really tough call. Um, I don't. I think to choke, you have to be the clearly better team, and they were the favorite for sure, and they had their chances. They dominated the first half. They did dominate the first half, but I saw a stat during the game that had like the time of possession, and it was fifty-fifty, like exactly fifty-fifty. So, yeah, I mean, they they were unlucky, as they like to say in soccer. They hit what three posts? Morgan hit one. Uh, Wombach hit one right off the bat, and. They were definitely unlucky. If they choked, I would say they, in penalties. they choked in the penalty kick. Yeah, penalties were bad. The, the, horrible, the horrible second, kicks. The second girl shooter, I don't want to like single out just one person, but that was the worst penalty kick I've ever seen, and I played a lot of soccer. She sailed it over by 10 feet. She, just like, she almost looked like she just started laughing. Like she couldn't even believe how bad she hit it over. So the first one, we kind of got unlucky, the U.S., because 
she got the goalie gets the right way, but it still kind of only hit her foot that was kind of coming up. Yeah, that even that though, like as a soccer player, that's not a great shot. I mean, that's too close to the middle of the net. Like right. the goalie, the goalie dove too far over, and that's probably not where she wanted to put that at all. And then the second one ended up going over the Sailed net. Over, yep. And then the third one was saved cleanly. Another bad shot, though. It just didn't seem like she had much on no. it. And the Japan, you know, and when Wambach went, you could kind of see a totally different player walking up. She walked up calm. She was composed. And she just drilled it yep. into the net. And I thought, man, I wonder if she should have went first. Just to kind of calm down the rest of the team. I was almost wondering if she just thought it was over at that point. And just, like, the pressure was almost off because it didn't matter. Only because of her reaction. She wasn't overly excited after she scored. I mean, maybe not. Yeah, that could be. That's a good point. And I also kind of tweeted, not kind of tweeted, but I tweeted during the game that there were a lot of people that had close opportunities, but Wambach had a great opportunity that she kicked. She had it on her foot, too. It wasn't on her head. She had it right on her foot. Great pass from Alex Morgan, who was the, easily the best player in that game. And she sailed it over from close, too. So there's well, a lot of chances. I, I don't know. It's tough to call it a choke. I don't think they were so much better. I mean, is, is the U.S. over Russia an 80 a choke for Russia? I mean, I don't even think the gap is that big between these two teams. You know, the U.S. women had a great tournament. They weren't the favorite. Germany was. They beat Brazil. Right. Which was a huge, huge thing, beating the team with the best player in the world, right. who was great that day, too. It's not like Marta played poorly. And they made it to the finals. They won the golden ball. Han Solo won that. <laughs> they won the uh, silver ball, which was won by Wambach. I think I'm getting those awards correct. But basically the best defender or goalie and the best scorer. Right. They won both of those. And they lost in penalties. And, you know... Geez, I would love to see a golden goal. For some reason, that has phased out of soccer. They like to play the full 30 minutes and then let it go to penalties, and penalties are tough, and they can go either way. And Japan was a great story, and I don't feel any resentment towards Japan. It's cool that they won. They had a tough year as a country. I'm glad. It's almost like a Saints story. Right, right. You know, the Saints and their community, and I'm sure Japan and their country. And just to watch, Han Solo is still really young. I'm sure she'll be there for the next Olympics. And Alex Morgan is going to be one of the best female players of all time. That's the one thing I would question is, do you think the, uh, do you think there's a lot of or any questioning going on of the coach? Not Morgan was the most dangerous player on the field, and she played only what, maybe 30 minutes. Like she didn't play the entire first half of that game. If anything, from like an overly critical, like soccer player watching the game type thing, I thought her touches were a little bit off early in the game. But she's after, very young still. She was so fast. She's very fast. It and was, she's young, and she's going to get better. It looked like like in the playground where you just boot it and you let the fastest girl on the field goal get it. I think we, me and you, need to get to Rochester yeah, when sure. things get back. And we need to see Alex Morgan and Marta up close and try to get, get one of them on the show or both or see what we can do down there. But Absolutely. Fantastic. Congratulations to Japan and congratulations to our ladies. They made us proud. I know it's been asked by everybody, but real quick. Does it do anything for soccer? I doubt it. I mean, I, I kind of think the same way. Like, I think it kind of quietly grows on its own, and then it comes to, like, ahead during these events, like the World Cup and all that. Yeah, those. I'm always going to love these events. Right. I love the World Cup. Now I love the Women's World Cup. Right. And next year is going to be the European Championship. I think I'll get into that. And also we're going to have the Olympics, and women's soccer is is – 
basically really men's soccer isn't the same quality at the Olympics. It's much younger players, but the the women's soccer is going to be basically the same team. So right. there'll be a really exciting women's tournament uh, involved in the Olympics, and you know soccer is just going to continue to slowly, slowly, slowly grow. All right, on to my second thing. I am not a Michael Vick guy. Me very, neither. very early in the podcast, we discussed whether he should. This might have even been before the podcast, but we discussed. I discussed whether I I thought he should even be allowed back into the league, saying that it's a privilege and whatnot. And we argued about whether. I mean, he did his time. Anyway, I'm not a Michael Vick guy. That said, he Michael Vick has appeared before Congress and with an anti-dog fighting message. He said he served 18 months in prison. And he wants to teach kids not to repeat his mistakes and to take profits away from sponsors of these events. I didn't know there were dogfighting sponsors. But uh, <laughs> the chief executive officer of the Humane Society said, I had a lot of soul searching to do before deciding to partner with Vic, but uh, obviously he did. And I don't know if this is Vic just trying to do the right thing or make a PR move in the right direction, but... It's nice to see regardless. Yeah, I've been on record as not being a fan of Michael Vick long before dogfighting, back in the Rod Mexico days. Yeah. You know, I've never been a fan of the guy. But it's funny we mentioned Josh off the top because Josh is someone close to us that's made his fair share of mistakes. And one thing I said to Josh one time is when you make a mistake, the mistake is over. And what's important is how you rebound from that mistake as a man. Right. And I've kind of been impressed the way Michael Vick has changed his life, even if it's just on the surface. Right, right. Because he's making an impact. He's making an impact in the right communities where he has a great voice. I've spent many years teaching kids in the inner Buffalo schools, and I know they respond to Michael Vick. They don't care that he was in jail for dogfighting. Those kids still look up to Michael Vick. He plays really well there, and that's an area where dogfighting is really prevalent and very dangerous. And he's making a very positive impact. I give him credit for that. Yep. It's made me want to back off a little bit. And I'm glad he's doing it and he needs to continue to do it. And what I like the most about it is he didn't do it for like a week and then just stop. Right, right. It seems like he's still going through it. And as long as he does this and is a spokesperson and goes on and on in his life, making a positive influence, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off. Yeah, like you said, even if it's just something on the surface, the effect is more important than the cause, I suppose, in that if uh, millions of kids that admire him see this and back off of dogfighting or get out of that type of life or whatever, then, then good for him. And to be clear, the, the legislation that would be passed would penalize people who knowingly attend dogfights and also the, those that allow minors to attend. Uh, dogfighting is a very, very cruel, ugly thing. And the quicker that it's removed from society because that's the thing about it too it's a big part of the inner city right culture in this in this country you can almost smell it if you're in the right areas of the city you know and you see the you see the dogs and and you just you think the worst right away and well it's it's nice to see michael vick doing doing what he can to uh use his name to uh to make a difference Darren Clark, my second thing. Darren Clark is the winner of the Open Championship. Many people missed it. It's, uh, it's a tough one because it's on so early in the day. But like I said, I, I woke up 
Woke up, had breakfast, sat down, watched the golf. Phil Mickelson made a little bit of a charge. Yep. Uh, who There was another golfer, a U.S. golfer as well, uh, Dustin Johnson, I believe. Yes. Who made a charge as well. Uh, but Darren Clark, he took a hold of it on Saturday, and he played fabulous and won it. The golf gods wanted him to win, too. Yeah, I absolutely. I don't know how closely you watched it or whatever, but there were shots that they were like, oh, no, this is no good, and it would, like, land right between two bunkers or bounce right over it or fall on a bunker, but because the sand was wet, it wouldn't, wasn't buried at all. It was just sitting there on top of the sand. I mean, he played great, but even he was kind of laughing at some of the shots at some of the crazy bounces he was getting. He's played in five Ryder Cups, so he's not a complete no-name by right. any means. Uh, however, he did. He, this is his first major win. He won it by three strokes. And, you know, it's, it's the year of the Northern Ireland golfer. <laughs> uh, Rory McIlroy, right. being from Nor- Northern Ireland, won the, the last major, probably should have won the last two. Darren Clark wins this one, and it sets us up for a lot of interesting storylines in the PGA Championship. Uh, we have three different winners in the three majors so far this year in golf. It'll be interesting as we get to the PGA, is Tiger Woods going to be a factor? Phil Mickelson seems to be playing better. Anthony Kim played better this weekend, right. which I think is good for the future of U.S. golf. So it's going to be interesting as we get into the PGA Championship just to see who wins that one. But before we get to that, congratulations to Darren Clark. He seems like a great guy. I've really enjoyed listening to his interviews. I feel great for him. I'm glad he was the winner. And uh, it's been a very, very strange golf season. I'm sure we're going to talk to Zach about it again before we get to the PGA. But Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't know who his sponsors are off the top of my head, but uh, golf and his sponsors have to like, I mean, obviously his sponsors like that he won, but I mean, he's a likable, likable guy. He's a good guy for golf w- with all the stuff surrounding Tiger Woods and everything. My third thing. Now, this one is going to hit, maybe this is going to get good to get your opinion on it because you're an outspoken Drew Brees guy. Oh, yeah. Drew Brees, uh, Peyton Manning, Logan Mankins, Vincent Jackson all have gone public with a, uh, a lawsuit against the league. And now as it sounds like the league and players association are getting closer, it seems to be that some of these players are kind of requesting side deals. And I don't, I'm not going to claim to know a ton about what this is, but Chris Cluey, or Chloe, I don't know how to say it, he's a punter, tweeted from at Chris Warcraft, which is his name, <laughs> sigh, and once again, greed is the operative byword. Congrats Breeze, Manning, Mankins, and Jackson for being, quote, that guy. Hashtag douchebags. Wow. So Chris Cluey. Shot fired. Yeah. And apparently what he's getting at is Logan Mankins and the Chargers receiver Vincent Jackson have requested either free agency after all is said and done or $10 million each in exchange for their signature on the settlement for the case. Um, The Boston Globe reported that Colts quarterback Peyton Manning and Saints quarterback Drew Brees want to be exempt from the franchise tag as part of signing this stuff. Um, Adam Schefter reported that it was Jackson's agents, not Jackson that made the demands, but Really, what's the difference? Chris Mortensen has chimed in. Chris Mortensen says, Any media reports of a last-minute power play by players are misleading and erroneous. They are unresolved issues, and we remain focused on resolving them. Okay, good. So my third thing was going to be, how do you feel about it? And I kind of felt like it might be a little bit early to talk about it, so maybe I should have trusted that instinct. But, you know, here's the thing. I mean, if Chris Cluey is saying something, he's 
buying into it. Right. So he either, he owes somebody an apology or he knows more than... Well, it wouldn't be the first time someone overreacted on Twitter. No, that's true. You know, and I think everyone's just really frustrated. Right. And everyone is really anxious. And the punters are not the richest players on the field. And I'm sure he's very anxious to get back to work and to resume his career. And everyone who's a football fan all across the United States, Canada, even the world, is ready for this thing to be over. And there's nothing worse than spending the last two weeks hearing, a deal is really close, but we can't talk about it. A deal is really close, but not yet. And this whole thing is dragged on way too long, and we're tired of it, and we're frustrated. Now, I know Drew Brees. I know a lot about Drew Brees. I don't know him personally. But I know a lot about the guy he is, and greedy does not seem to be. No, it sure doesn't. I mean, for his character, he uh, he's a free agent that chose to. He lives in New Orleans. He lives now, in New he? Orleans. Yes, he's been a big part of the city. He signed there in two thousand six. Admittedly, he's admitted himself. He didn't have a ton of options. It was basically Miami and New Orleans. But he's totally embraced the city. He wants to be there forever. Right, but that's what I mean. He, he's rich. He could go live in Miami and play in New Orleans if yes. he wanted to. But he chose to live in the city through all the, the if Drew, trouble they had. If Drew Brees is greedy, I'd just be surprised. Right, and like I said, maybe I should have trusted my instinct and thought that this is a little bit too much in its infancy to talk about but but i know that they do need the brady versus the nfl antitrust case is what we're talking about and it does need to be complete for the correct collective bargaining agreement to go through so it is something that they need to solve you probably can't have a lawsuit against your employer right so it is something that needs to be solved and hopefully i did hear hopefully everything works out yeah I, i i don't think it won't which is a weird way to say that. But uh, I did hear today that the players had something in place, like a $200,000 per player. I can't remember where I read it. Yeah, I heard that as well. That they, That's the first I heard about that. Yeah, I heard that as well. And I think that's a big part of getting the owners back to the bargaining table. That I think they decided that you know the players aren't going to be as big of a pushover as we right. thought. And I think the players have done a good job, and, and they have gained a lot a lot more than where this started. Consider, yeah, considering when it started, how embarrassing they looked. Like some of the reactions, I can't remember the names of athletes. I want to say like Cromartie was was uh, not overly professional in his words when he started, but they've come a long way and they've done a good job. It seems like yeah, absolutely. Let's get this thing done. Hopefully, by the time we do another show, show number thirty-two next week, which we're going to talk a lot of baseball, I'm sure, because the baseball trading deadline is just a few days later. And actually, Ben Nicholson Smith from MajorLeagueBaseballRumors.com is confirmed for next week. But uh, hopefully, this will be over. I'm I'm tired of it. Yep. Last thing for today, Steven Stamkos is not going to be getting an offer sheet because the Tampa Bay Lightning and Steven Stamkos have come to an agreement. It's a five-year deal. Uh, he will earn $8 million in the first four seasons and $5.5 million in the fifth year. His cap hit will be $7.5 million. He was the first pick in the 2008 draft. He had 45 goals last year. Great deal, I think. Makes a lot of sense. Congratulations to Steve Eiserman. It's exactly what the organization needed to do. And they did it on their terms. Do you, are you surprised how short-term it is? Um, yes and no. I mean, it, it reads like a real contract to me. Maybe they didn't want to right. be a part of writing these felonious deals that last until they got players but 39 I mean, years you old. You could have given him $7.5 over 10 years. And that would have still been a deal. I mean, he does, he's only be, what, 31 at the end of that You know deal? what? Part of the shorter deal might be that they were able to get him at a cheaper price because 
Maybe he and wants that, to be a free yeah, agent again? Yeah, like, you know, saying to him, okay, we'll only make it five years. You'll have another chance to be a free agent in five years. But in the meantime, it's only a $7.5 million cap hit, which means they'll be able to keep LeCavier and St. Louis if they want. Everyone's going to be able to fit in there. They can make a run. They were close last year. You know, so maybe they're looking to take a run right now, and then they'll see where everything shakes up. And plus, the cap could go down. That's true. Again, if there's another lockout. Do you think that? Do you think that's evidence that he didn't get any offer sheets? Because if he got an offer sheet, it would have had to have been something huge. Oh, we would have known about it. Oh, right. Well, would we have known if he didn't sign it? Yeah, I think we would have known because yeah. they, they, sure right away the, the clock starts, him. and you have to. Well, that's if he signs it. I mean. True, 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 so I'm, true. I'm not positive about that. But maybe teams just decided that... I'm just saying, if someone was going to give an offer sheet, it would have been bigger than what he got. And it seems like that agreement, whatever it may or may not be, that hush-hush owners, hush, yeah. owners, that might be alive and well. Because if, if there was a year for there to be offer sheets, this was the year, and we haven't seen one yet. It'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, the defenseman, drawing a blank, uh, Nashville. Uh, Shea Weber. Shea Weber is going to go to arbitration. That could be ridiculous. He should stand to do very well in arbitration. <laughs> and I just had a quick aside, if you're all set there. Yeah. Um, last week we talked about the Derek Jeter ball and about how Christian Lopez might have to end up paying taxes on the gifts that the Yankees gave him. What I haven't heard anyone say is why would Jeter be exempt from the same thing? Christian Lopez was the owner of that ball when he gave it to Jeter, and that ball has a value of around two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars. Shouldn't Jeter have to pay taxes on that gift? I don't. It's a very interesting question, but you know the IRS has not been shy at going after Derek Jeter, especially the state. They've went after him before. He claims to be a resident of Florida, so he can get the the break on the inc- the state income tax. Okay, and they have challenged him in the past, so. I mean, that sh- could be something that they're looking into. I, I have no idea. Yeah, isn't it, I mean, but that is an interesting point. Yeah, the Christian Lopez thing, just for to wrap it up, it sounds like he got plenty of deals. What's the place? The sports place, Models or something like yep. that, was going to have a uh, Christian Lopez week, and like 5% of all the sales were going to go help him to pay off whatever the IRS, if they did come after him. So it sounds like it's going to work out for him. But I just I was thinking that today about how he got a gift. Why isn't the ball considered a gift to Jeter? I wasn't sure. That's a really interesting point, a very interesting point. And if there's any lawyers out there <laughs> yeah. who know why, drop us a line at thesportscasters at gmail.com. All right, that's it for three things for this week. Here's where we go from here. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Stuart Mandel from the Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. And uh, then we're going to come back with a new segment called Five on Fantasy, and we'll tell you what that's all about in a few minutes. But first, let's talk to Stuart Mandel. Our next guest is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and is a graduate of Northwestern University. In 2007, he released his first book, Bulls, Poles, and Tattered Souls, Tracking the Chaos and Controversy that Reigns Over the College Football Industry. In 2008, he earned his first, earned first and second place honors for his work in the Football Writers Association of America's annual writing contest. He has worked for the Cincinnati Inquirer, ABC Sports Online, and ESPN The Magazine. Today, he is a senior writer at SI.com, covering the national college football beat and college basketball. He also contributes features for Sports Illustrated. And be sure to listen to his podcast called The Mandel Initiative. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Stuart Mandel. How are you doing today, Stuart? 
I'm doing well. How are you? Doing very well. Very excited to have you on the show today. Excited in the sense that it's just it's time to talk college football again. Uh, it's been a little bit. Actually, I think I told you in email, our very first show was the day after the national championship game. So we haven't had a ton of time to focus on college football. But I guess the first couple of questions I want to ask you is just, just kind of clean up what's gone on since the season has ended. And I know the biggest story that has happened is the falling out at Ohio State. And I was just wondering if maybe you want to kind of put in per- perspective for our listeners exactly what happened at Ohio State and where they can go from here. Well, obviously, it was you know there's been a lot of NCAA type stories, NCAA scandals, but this was the biggest I think, both because of who it involved, Jim Trestle, you know, one of the most revered coaches in the game for the past decade, who just dominated the Big Ten and won a national title. Um, you know, for, for for a coach of that stature to leave the game is is a huge deal. For him to leave in kind of disgrace over just a you know an egregious. Uh, unethical conduct violation that it just, you know, it just floors you that, that anyone, much less him, uh, w- would have gone through with that. Uh, you know, it's why it was so shocking and why I think it's caused such backlash around the country because, you know, the better you do, the, the harder they fall. And people are just much more worked up about Ohio State and what sanctions they might face and et cetera than they are about a program like North Carolina um, who's got their own scandal going on. But, you know, obviously is not as prestigious and has not had as, uh, played as big a role on the national scene recently as Trestle's program did. And obviously since the fallout, Terrell Pryor has left school. Do the, does Ohio, Ohio State have a chance to compete in the Big Ten at all this year, or are they going to face a few years of kind of coming back to earth the way other programs have, like Oklahoma did when they faced their sanctions in the early 80s? Like where, where, where does the program stand? Well, yeah, I think they'll have a tough year this year. Um, I think they were going to have some rebuilding to do anyway on defense. Uh, you know, lost a bunch of good seniors, Cameron Hayward, Ross Holman, Brian Roll. So it was going to be an inexperienced defense. Now, obviously, Ohio State recruits well every year, so it wouldn't have been too big a drop-off, but there would have been some rebuilding to do. Now you've got, you know, your first five games you're playing without uh, Devere Posey, Dan Heron, uh, Mike Adams. Uh, and, and amongst those first five games, you're playing at Miami, you're playing Michigan State. So, and now you don't have your coach. Now you have a, an interim coach. So, yeah, I, I don't know what the long-term implications are, but I do think this particular season will be the year that their run of BCS bowls, which I think is uh, six straight, uh, comes to an end. I don't think it'll be a disaster, but I just don't think they'll be. Uh, I, I think the Big Ten is open to other teams this year. You wrote on Friday. Now we never get too far. Away, when we talk about Ohio State, you never get too far away from Michigan. And you wrote a little bit on Friday about how their new coach, Brady Hoke, is that how you pronounce it, or is it Hokey? Yes. Yeah, how he has uh, been really coming on to campus and really turned things around. I'll just talk a little bit about Michigan and, and how their prospects look for this year and, and the future. Yeah, I mean, this is a robbery that's been so one-sided for, for as long as Jim Trestle is there. And then in the course of a few months, now obviously they haven't played on the field yet, but um, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong for Ohio State. And off the field, at least, everything that can go right has gone right for Hoke in that he's just really galvanized that community that was so divided during the Rich Rodriguez era. They see what a huge Michigan guy he is. Uh, I think that's been a big thing. And then he hired a, a great staff, a great defensive coordinator, Greg Madison, 
And what's really, you know, making Michigan fans so happy is that he's just cleaning up and recruiting for next year. He's getting big-time commitments, and, and in particular, a couple from Ohio. Guy, One guy in particular, a big offensive lineman who switched from Ohio State to Michigan. So, you know, they're just they're just loving it. They're loving uh, what Hoke's done so far, and they're loving watching Ohio State crumble. Now, it doesn't mean that when they meet in November that <laughs> they don't necessarily go Michigan's way. They've, they've got rebuilding to do still from the Rodriguez time, but... So far, Hoke is off to a good start. I love how he refuses to call Ohio State Ohio State and calls them Ohio. I think that's hilarious. He does, yeah. <laughs> and, he doesn't, and he doesn't wear red, which was, you know, his last two schools he coached at had red as one of their colors, but he wore, he wore black. <laughs> that's great. That's really funny. So I read a report today that said that Texas A&M could potentially leave the Big 12 because they're having trouble recruiting against Texas with Texas's network. And I guess... My question is more about Texas than it is Texas A&M, and that is what kind of effect is the Texas Longhorn Network going to have on college football? And are we, and I think it, it's a game. Yeah, it's a game changer, no question. Um, and first of all, A&M can talk all they want about moving to the SEC. The SEC it hasn't invited them. <laughs> right. they, they don't. They, they, there was a possibility last year when when it looked like the, the Big Twelve might implode and the Pac-10 would get all those teams. There was a possibility. That the SEC would take Oklahoma and A&M, but they're not. That's no longer on the table. Um, but yeah, the Longhorn. I think people are only. I don't know why it took this long, but people are starting to realize the significance of this thing and the fact that ESPN, which already plays such a big role in college football and has so many uh, of the conferences' TV rights, uh, now has a direct stake in one of the teams and and is really not holding anything back. Uh, they're uh, putting a lot of promotional muscle into the Longhorn Network. They're sending the game day crew down there for the debut of the network and then i think what's really got people riled up and rightfully so is that they're playing to show uh high school games they're playing to show games of the recruits wow. that are either committing you know have either committed to texas or texas is trying to get and uh, people are furious they and in schools like that and i don't blame them um and i know the ncaa is concerned because uh there are technical there are rules against some, something like that but they seem to be circumventing it by the fact that it's theoretically ESPN that's programming this and not the University of Texas. So it's a game changer, and I'm sure other schools are going to look to do the same, but not every school has the, um, the, the power to pull that off. I mean, Texas is a huge school with a huge national following. Um, you know, there's only a handful of schools in the country, I think, that could pull off having their own network, and some of them can't because, you know, in the Big Ten, they have the Big Ten network, and the Pac-12 is going to start their own network. So it's, it's not every school that can do this. I believe I read today on uh, the Fan Nation Truth and Rumors site that Oklahoma is a team that could possibly be interested in a network. Yeah, they, they're. Although I, I saw their athletic director's comments and it was more about, um, you know, I think he's focused more on the digital end of things, not necessarily starting a cable channel. But right, you know, all these schools have um, quote unquote networks, and uh, there's a difference between a channel like Texas is going to have. And when they say, like, the Oklahoma Network, well, that is that, you know, a lot of these schools hold the rights to the games that don't get shown by ESPN or Fox, and they can do what they want with them, and whether that syndicate them to, um, you know... Pay-per-view. Across their state, or pay-per-view, exactly. Um, I think now, with the Internet, these schools are saying, oh, wait a minute, we should, instead of selling these or giving them away, we should control them. We should put them on, you know, a platform online and digitally so people... Um, and will come to our site or come to our you know, product that we create. Um, 
and watch the games there. So I think that's more what he was talking about. Let's talk a, lot, a little bit about Oklahoma while we're here. One of the sad stories over the over the off season was the tragic passing of Austin Box. I know a lot of people think that Oklahoma is going to be one of the top two or three teams in the nation this year. Big day, probably the second week of the season with their matchup against Florida State. What do you see in Oklahoma that makes them a national championship contender? And what do you think of Landy Jones as a starting quarterback? And how do you think Oklahoma is going to make up for the loss of their running back? Who, <laughs> uh, DeMarco Murray. DeMarco Murray, sorry. Yes, who set yeah. the record for most touchdowns at the school. Yeah, Oklahoma is loaded. There's no question about it. Uh, when when you know Landry Jones really came on toward the end of last year, by the end of it, you could holy cow, he threw for 4,700 yards, and nobody seemed to realize that until the end. But um, you know, he's the latest in the line of these Oklahoma quarterbacks that throw for a ton of yards. But what really put them over the top was when Ryan Broyles, the receiver, and Travis Lewis, the linebacker, both those guys could have gone out and been probably you know for, if not first round, early second round draft picks. They both came back, and that just kind of put them over the top in a lot of people's eyes. I don't think they're without flaws, and you mentioned one of them. DeMarco Murray gets overlooked a lot. Uh, but they've got Roy Finch, uh, who was a freshman last year, another rising freshman, Brandon Williams. So I think people feel like they'll have good running backs, and I think they'll have a, a very good defense, which honestly hasn't been their strong suit in the past few years. They, they've become one of these big 12 teams that just tries to outscore people. Um, but I do think they'll be pretty good on defense this year. They should have a pretty pretty decent secondary, too. Uh, and you mentioned Ryle Broyles. What a stud from Norman. Um, definitely a very exciting player to watch. Maybe a little bit even underrated because I don't hear as much about him as maybe some of the other stars. Uh, is Texas going to be ha- having a down year this year? I mean, is the Big 12 really is Oklahoma's to win, right? Or to lose? I think it's Oklahoma's to lose, but I think, um, you know, Texas, Texas isn't quite, I mean, they had such a bad year last year. The bottom fell out, and they had to completely restructure their staff and hire new coordinators. So um, I think you'll see them improve this year, but not back to the level that you saw. I mean, they were national title game two years ago. It's going to take some rebuilding to get back to that level. Um, the teams I like beyond Oklahoma in that conference this year are Texas A&M, um, who, who had a very strong uh, finish last regular season, uh, winning six in a row before the bowl game. Uh, they've got a lot of lot of talent. It's probably the most talented team in the conference outside of Oklahoma. And Missouri is always a, a team that people should uh, – they can always surprise. You know, they've contended in the past. They're going to get overlooked a little this year because they lost Blaine Gabbard, but I think they'll be okay. Um, Texas probably is more realistically a team you could slot into the fourth or fifth spot. Interesting. So another interesting storyline – is the kind of some teams have kind of shifted around in conferences and the Pac-10 is going to look a little different this year and USC has been down. What do you project in the in the Pac-10? Are any of the new teams going to make an impact? Is Stanford still going to be one of the top dogs uh, having the main big guy in the country there, at quarterback? What do you think of uh, the Pac-10? Um, Oregon's probably still the team to beat now. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding their whole program right now. They right. have their own investigation going on and I don't know if you know if that's going to affect Chip Kelly or not but uh, you know I think they're still I mean you look at the, who they have coming back from a team that played in the national title game last year they have their quarterback they have Michael James um, they did lose some key guys on defense but uh, you know they're still the best team I mean Stanford is a team and I mean Andrew Luck is by far the best player in the country but he can't do it himself and he lost his 
uh, some of his key offensive linemen. He lost, obviously, his coach in Harbaugh. I think they'll still be very good. I don't think they'll be at the BCS level they were last year. So I don't – beyond Oregon, it, it, there's any number of teams that could step up and contend. Maybe Arizona State, um, USC's ineligible, but maybe they could at least be a factor. Uh, it should, beyond Oregon, it seems pretty wide open to me. College football kind of always begins and ends with the SEC for the last – well, quite a few years now. It's almost like the national championship game is whoever wins the SEC versus someone else. Uh, Alabama, LSU. Uh, I know Auburn probably should be down a little bit with some of the players they lost. Uh, I've heard Georgia a little bit, but is is Alabama still the class of this league? Yeah, I think Alabama is the class of the league and possibly the best team in the country. They um, returned nine starters from a defense that inexperienced a year ago, but still statistically was very, you know, was, you would never know it because they, you know, they did lose three games, but uh, they finished in the top ten in defense, and a whole bunch of those guys will be drafted high. Dante Hightower, Courtney, uh, Courtney Upshaw, linebacker, um, uh, Mark Barron at safety. And then on the other side of the ball, you think, well, they lost uh, Mark Ingram. That's if they're going to be a problem. Well, no, not really because they have Trent Richardson still. So, um they're just loaded top to bottom. And, uh, you know, I think the only thing holding people back about them is they haven't decided on a starting quarterback. It's obviously not ideal. Um, but it really sounds like that's a situation where either guy they feel comfortable with. It's not that, you know, sometimes when you, when you can't decide on the quarterbacks because nobody is really standing out. I think they both played well in the spring, and he's just having, you know, trouble deciding which one. LSU got into a little bit of trouble today, and NCAA put them in a one-year probation. Is this anything that's going to affect their season, or is this just kind of a small penalty? It was a pretty small penalty. It was for stuff that happened a while ago involving an assistant coach who's been fired, who got fired back when it happened. So now they have been connected to Willie Lyles, the same, um, the same recruiting service guy that is the reason Oregon is kind of under the microscope now. He, he also dealt with LSU, and that investigation is, is ongoing as we speak so if they were to get into further trouble beyond what happened today then, then you could have an issue but uh, that should be fine LSU is going to be very good too um, they really need Jordan Jefferson their quarterback to just step up and, and be uh, being a fit you don't even to be a superstar but you know the past few years he's struggled a lot and uh, and last year they managed to win 11 games anyway so uh, this year they could really use him to turn the corner in his senior year uh, so they don't have to rely so heavily on their defense. Should be an interesting conference. Another thing I wanted to ask you, we, we talked about the Big Ten a little bit earlier, and Nebraska is moving to the Big Ten. How do you think that they're going to fit in in that conference? And, and There's no more Oklahoma-Nebraska rivalry. There's no more Texas-Nebraska. Where, where will Nebraska turn for a rival, and how do you think they fit into the Big Ten? Well, it's funny because when Big Ten expansion possibilities first started opening up, nobody seemed to think this was realistic. And I've kind of been mentioning them all a long time because, you know, I know that they have the traditional rivalries with Oklahoma and Missouri and teams like that, but I, I think they kind of fit more with uh, Big Ten teams. I, I mean, you think about teams like Wisconsin and Iowa, um, and I think Iowa will be their end-of-season rival naturally because of the border, but um, Wisconsin, Ohio State, uh, even Penn State, they share – much of that same kind of Rust Belt mentality um, that Nebraska does. And, uh, you know, they're going, in fact, they're going from a conference where now everybody seems to run these, you know, like Oklahoma is throwing 50 times a game. That was never Nebraska style, and now they're going to a conference 
where teams run the ball a lot and they play physical defense, and, and that's what Nebraska's known for. So I think they'll step in and fit in very well right from the start. We mentioned the Oklahoma and Florida State game the second week of the season. What are some other big non-conference games that are at the beginning of the season that we can kind of mark on our calendar and look look forward to as we get closer to the season here? Well, we got a really good one that very first Saturday, Oregon LSU in uh, in Dallas. Uh, you know, I think whoever wins that game will probably uh, be thrust into the national title conversation. It's only one game, so that's probably <laughs> reading too much into it. But because they're going to both be very highly ranked, it's a huge way to start the season. That's a huge also, game. That, yeah, it's a huge game, and, and I'm intrigued that same night, uh, Georgia Boise State. Um, the second week of the season, you've got uh, Alabama going up to Penn State. They handled them pretty well last year in Tuscaloosa, but maybe be a little tougher on the road. And uh, and the Michigan Notre Dame game is always interesting. It's, just, it's always like a status check. All right, where where are these two programs right now? It's uh, the first night game at Michigan Stadium since I want to say 1988. So um, it'll be kind of a significant event. Where is Notre Dame? A lot of people, I'm like a lot of people, I think they uh, will take a big step here in Brian Kelly's second year. They really played well down the stretch last year on defense, which is, you know, what they were always missing under Charlie White. They were tough on defense, and uh, and, and now I expect to see them continue that, and I expect to see, you know, having a year of, of Brian Kelly's offense to take a step forward there. The, the schedule they play, it, it's really hard for, for for Notre Dame to, you know, reach the 10-11 wins, they need to go to the VCS playing that kind of schedule when you um, you play an annual game against USC, an annual game against Stanford. Uh, but, you know, I think they'll be significantly improved. You mentioned Boise State a few minutes ago, and we had them and TCU play incredible football last season. Is there any teams from the outside of the Big Six conferences that will make a run at being undefeated and being a part of the BCS conversation? I think um, Boise State still has the best chance, but it'll be tough. They're moving into a tougher conference, and they did lose a whole bunch of guys from last year's team. Um, you know, so but but out of coming out of the Mountain West, uh, you know, they probably have a better chance than TCU. I would say keep an eye on San Diego State, who improved a lot last year, uh, but then obviously lost Brady Hope. Um, and then I don't know. There's there's other teams like Houston and UCF that I think will be very good and could pull off some upsets. But undefeated might be asking a little bit much. We mentioned Andrew Luck earlier. Clearly, will enter the season as the front runner for the Heisman Trophy. He'll be the best player, getting ready to be a number one pick in the NFL draft. Who are some other names that we should keep an eye on as potential Heisman Trophy candidates? Well, you got two of last year's finalists back, in, in Michael James and Kellen Moore. Um, I mentioned Trent Richardson earlier. I think he'll absolutely be uh, part of the Heisman conversation because now he'll he has not. With the carries anymore um, with Mark Ingram. And, uh, you know, because he plays the number one team and he's going to put up a whole bunch of yards, Landry Jones um, will probably be, will enter into that as well. Uh, you know, it, it, the Heisman voters rarely seem to give much, um, seem to take wide receivers seriously. If they did, there are so many good ones this year. Justin Blackman at Oklahoma State had such a monster year last year. We all assumed he would turn pro when he came back. Um, he would certainly be on my radar. Um, if, if people are willing to take a look at a receiver. Um, but there's a lot of good running backs, especially in the SEC, which is loaded with running backs, like not just Richardson, but Marcus Lattimore in South Carolina. 
uh, Michael Dyer at Auburn. So those are some guys. We covered a lot of different things. Well, well, first of all, sportscasters are here with Stuart Mandel, Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter. He is at SL Mandel. We've covered a lot of different things. We've kind of been going back and forth through all these different things. Are there any other storylines that we haven't mentioned that you're looking forward to see play out as the season begins or as we get closer to the season? Um, I'm interested in the impact of Russell Wilson at Wisconsin. Uh, you know, that's, that's about as high-profile transfer as you can get going from three-year starter at NC State and performing at a very high level and now stepping into a Wisconsin team that's coming off a Rose Bowl season and and had a real question mark at quarterback, and that seems to be answered. And then yeah, I guess the other one would be, um, you know, we mentioned some of the conference moves, like Nebraska to the Big Ten uh, and Utah to the Pac-12. Um, but, but you know, a real intriguing one is BYU going independent, um, kind of going against the grain. Uh, most teams look to join a conference. They're going independ- independent. And um, and so far it seems like it's a good move. The ESPN is going to televise, like, ten of their games, uh, they're going to play teams like Texas and Notre Dame. Uh, so I'll be interested to see, mostly I'll be interested to see how perception of them changes. You know, I think since the BCS started, if you were not in one of those six conferences, you were automatically given a, a stigma. You're a non-BCS team, you play a weak schedule, um, you had to go undefeated to make the BCS. Uh, BYU is now neither. They're neither BCS conference or non-BCS conference. I'm interested to see how people treat them. Hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit for the last couple minutes here. And you do your own podcast. We mentioned it off the top called uh, the Mandela Initiative. What do you try to, what's kind of the mission of the podcast? And what is it that you like? Do you like doing it? And how does it help you as a writer? Well, the funny thing is that it started not about college football. We started it during the final season of the TV show Lost. And, uh, and, we were, and that's what it was for, is to have a weekly conversation about Lost. But, uh, once that ended, uh, myself and Mallory Rubin, the college football producer, said, you know, we had a lot of fun doing this. We should do it for actual college football. And it really is, you know, it's a fun kind of side project and a way to um, have a, you know, have a fun conversation each week about what's going on in the sport, have a, hopefully have a good guest on. And, and I think the people that listen to it would, would say that um, they get a little bit, bit better glimpse into our personalities than you can get um, from reading the written word. Uh, we, we have fun. It's a more casual banter, and uh, we answer uh, reader questions, and uh, and hopefully it's, hopefully it's entertaining. But for the most part, you know, I don't know how many people are even listening to it. We're just having fun doing it. Last week we had our thirtieth thirtieth episode, and my co-host and I went over some of our favorite guests that we've had on our podcast. Who are some of the favorite guests that you've had on yours? Um, one of the very first ones uh, we had Brent Musburger on, who I'm friendly with from just you know. First of all, being a fellow Northwestern alum, and then also seeing him at games, uh, but it, you know he's got such a distinctive voice, and when you hear him in a different way—not just you know outside of the, the your, your television broadcast—you hear his voice over the phone, and he's just answering a question, but he's, it's in the Brent Musburger voice. Uh, people, I think uh, that was really cool. People really enjoyed that. Uh, we had Erin Andrews on; she was very popular, uh, even though you couldn't see her. <laughs> and uh, you know, this spring we had Urban Meyer on. Um, you know, one of his first interviews, I think, since he left coaching. And um, and he had just gone on his, it was right after spring football ended, and he'd gone to all those schools like Oregon and Notre Dame and Michigan for ESPN. So he was able to give us, um, you know, some insight from what he learned from going to those schools since 
not you know not everybody's in that position to be able to go check out five different teams practicing in the spring. So those are three that stand out to me. What uh, what kind of relationship do you have with Twitter? You enjoy it? Um, uh, yeah, most of the time. Sometimes it can get a little little nasty, but uh, <laughs> you know it, it's an indispensable part of our industry now. It's an it's a news feed basically. It's, I'm either getting news or distributing news that way. Um, I'm also obviously maybe giving my opinion on things that don't necessarily merit a column or are things that are breaking before you can write the column. Um, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's just, I, I, it's um, mind-blowing to me the power of it. You know, you have to really be careful now what you tweet because, I don't know, I've got like 36 or 37,000 followers and, um, and, and you never know exactly who's following you. I mean, I've certainly had joke made like kind of snarky jokes about a team or something and and heard from that school <laughs> you know forget those schools are watching what you tweet um you know I, I, what i don't like about twitter recently is that uh writers are attacking other writers on there uh you know there used to be kind of a unspoken civility you may disagree with something somebody wrote but you you know you kept it professional and i, I feel like sometimes writers on there you know, because you're not being edited and you're not being held to the same standards you would when you write a column for your own site, just kind of let loose and unleash and say some things that probably shouldn't be said. So, yeah, um, it's, it's fun and it's and it's useful, but it can also be really dangerous. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of people say Twitter's a loaded gun, you know. So you yeah. are you are a big enough fan of Lost to start a podcast. How, has anything filled the void for you since Lost went off the air? Do you have a new favorite uh, show? No, you know. <laughs> People keep asking me that. I think it was kind of a one-time obsession. I've never been that into a television show before, and I haven't been since. I've obviously got, uh, you know, show, I mean, I love watching uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I love watching, you know, most of the shows that I love watching generally are comedies that you wouldn't sit around and have a roundtable discussion about. <laughs> so, uh, well, that was I a great Curb the other day. That yes, it's been great to have it back this season. Um, there's not much else going on to watch in the summer. It's been great to have her back. And the thing about Lost is that even though it's been over a year now, people still remember it. I mean, people keep coming up to me and, and, and mentioning either mentioning the podcast or making references to Lost or uh, or you see one of the actors in something else and it kind of throws you out of context. So um, it'll always be with us a little bit, but I have to say I have moved on. So I think I think a lot of people could maybe agree that Lost was the best network drama, but a lot of people tend to debate between Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, The Wire, and Mad Men. Do you get into any of those shows at all? You know, I'm embarrassed to say that I have never gotten into Breaking Bad, and I, there was a lot of buzz about it coming into the season, and I thought about starting to watch it, and then I, people told me there's no point if you haven't watched You need to go and, and start at the beginning. You do, but and, you're going to uh, have a that, great that ride. A, yeah, it'll be a time-consuming project. But I do love Mad Men. Uh, I've been watching that from the start. Um, what were the other ones you mentioned? The, the Wire and Sopranos, I'd say, the be the top four, yeah. Yeah, everybody loves The Wire. I didn't watch it closely enough. So, really, I mean, it was just an odd thing that I got so into Lost because mostly I watch comedy. Awesome. It's uh, Sportscasters here with Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. He is at SL Mandel. Last question, what what are you working on? What what can we expect from you here in the next couple of weeks? You got any big features that are going to be in the magazine? You planning to write another book? Are you 
working on just the column and the podcast, or what? You know, it's a lot of what we talked about during the podcast. This time of year is when we really ramp up season preview coverage, and you you might not be seeing my byline on the site that frequently during the week, but that's probably because I'm working on something that will run later, either for, we have like so many different things. Now we have the SI preview issue, we have the, we have, um, Specialized editions for the bit for four of the conferences I wrote for the Big Ten and the Big Twelve, and then we have our SI.com preview package that launches in early August. So you know, generally I'm working on one of those three things. Are you guys going to do anything special for the iPad version of the college football preview issue? Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I don't. I'm not privy to all the plans, but you know, I think that uh, they'll probably have some. I think there's going to be. <laughs> I can't say exactly because I can't say what the theme of the preview is. <laughs> but there's going to be some interactive elements to um, that have to do with the um, the cover story for this year's preview. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on the Sportscasters. I hope you had a good time, and I, I hope we can do it again sometime. All right. It was great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. All right, the sportscasters are back. I want to thank Stuart Mandel for an absolutely fantastic first appearance on the sportscasters. I'm pumped up for college football season. I can't wait for September 3rd when OU kicks off their season. And there's no messing around, Donnie. Second week of the year, Oklahoma at Florida State. Going to be an absolutely huge game. National championship right away is in, is in up for grabs there, you know, to, to be on track to win it. The team that wins that game is going to be really off on the right foot. So I'm I, really excited. I can see the week after that either being a week where you're coming totally pumped to do the podcast or a week <laughs> where you're totally pumped to complain about how much you hate college football. <laughs> <laughs> I am the college football fan that hates college football, right? <laughs> yeah. So we want to thank Stuart. And we're going to get to John Wertheim. But we're going to, we're going to try out a new segment here. This is uh, something we haven't done before. We're going to call it Five on Fantasy. Don and I are both big fantasy football guys. We love fantasy football. We've played for years, long before we ever dreamed of doing this podcast. Don Don has been known to win these leagues. They've been lucky quite often. Years, I've yeah. been known to lose them in the championship game quite <laughs> often. <laughs> On freakish Michael Vick one yard. Yes, plays. and uh, so what we're going to do is Don and I are going to trade back and forth uh, with just some fantasy, similar to three things, but with a fantasy edge to it. And then the fifth thing each week is going to be Don and I are going to debate two players that are very similar in the rankings and who we would rather have. And we'll talk more about that when we get to it. But Don's going to kick us off with his first thing on fantasy. My fantasy uh, angles this week happen to be Philadelphia Eagle-centric for some odd reason. But number my first guy I guess I'm going to talk about is Kevin Cobb. He's a really interesting player in that he got fairly highly drafted last year, probably around the top 12 quarterbacks or so. Immediately injured, Michael Vick took over and then had a fantastic year. He's currently on ESPN ranked around number 20, which is interesting because he's a backup quarterback. But I guess you probably Monday he's going to have a new team. Right, it, that ranking is based on an, ex- an expectation that he will be traded and he would probably move up a little starter. bit if he was right. traded. So I guess my question or my angle on this is, is he a top 15 guy? What's his ceiling? Is he a top 10 guy? Well, 
here's an interesting thing. The Arizona Cardinals are probably the team that would be most likely right. his destination. If Vegas were putting down odds and we're be Kevin Cobb would play, Arizona. they'd be the first team. Right. Well, what jumps out at you right away? Larry, Larry Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. Right. Dynamic receiver. You know, someone right away, he's got a great weapon. Right. To use. And they have a couple other guys there, right? Breston. Breston, yeah, he's not bad. And uh, could Beanie Wells finally emerge as a, as a good running back to take some pressure off the passing game? So I like that. I like that fit for him. And I like it a lot, maybe more for Fitzgerald even than I do oh, for, for, sure. oh, yeah. for Cobb because Fitzgerald is good. You're going to feel more comfortable knowing that there's a, a competent quarterback back there giving him his touches. And uh, what is his ceiling? He's probably not a starter in a 10-team league, maybe a starter in a 12-team league, but he's a backup that you feel really comfortable with. Yeah, I think I'd feel pretty good about him if he went to Arizona. I heard Seattle's name kind of tossed around. I don't think I feel as good about Seattle at all. Like That would probably be the worst-case scenario fantasy-wise, I think, for him to end up. Buffalo was kind of rumored. I don't see that happening. But yeah, I are- think they like Fitzgerald too much here. Or, I'm or- sorry, Fitzpatrick. I, I think so, too, but, I mean, if they did like Buffalo, I'd like him probably on Buffalo more than on Seattle just because the Bills may be bad. They've got a lot of offensive weapons. Yeah, so. they have Stevie Johnson. Who, They've got Lee Evans still. They've got. You know, the interesting thing is, is Stevie John- is he okay with God? <laughs> what, what is God and Stevie, Stevie Johnson's relationship like right now? I don't know. He really did him bad last year. Remember that? Yep. That was terrible. So Kevin Cobb's an interesting guy come draft day. I, I would be thrilled to have him as my number two. My two things today are going to both be about draft day dilemmas. And the first thing I want to say is when you're taking your first couple of players in a fantasy draft, make sure you're going to enjoy having them on your team. I don't mean necessarily draft your favorite player, but I do mean this is supposed to be fun. And fantasy football is the most fun when you can be really, really into your studs. Right? You don't want your studs to be on your least favorite team. Now, if you're drafting two, let's say, and for some reason, or let's say Adrian Peterson's off the board. So you're drafting two. And the two guys left are Chris Johnson that you're considering and Arian Foster. Okay. Well, if you are a big Houston Texans fan, pick Arian Foster. Yeah. Have fun with it. If you hate the Texans, if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan and you hate the Texans, then Chris pick Chris Johnson, but make sure you pick a guy that you want to have on your team. It's your team. Fantasy football is supposed to be fun. Some, some weeks are for money. Some weeks are for big money. So I'm not saying to make a stupid pick. I'm not all saying that at all. Equal. Yeah, right, I never but thought I'm, about I'm that. saying when, when things are equal, don't be afraid to let your allegiances break the tie. Because, you know, Don, you watch a lot of Red Zone. Yep. You know, but... How cool is it if the 4 o'clock game is your starting quarterback on Channel 4? Right, right. You know, and you get to sit and watch your quarterback play and root for your quarterback. Well, what a disaster if you're a big Bills fan and it's Tom Brady. <laughs> right. But you pick Tom Brady with Peyton Manning and Drew Brees still on the board. Yep. Would anyone say it's a bad pick to pick Drew Brees instead of Tom Brady? I don't know that I ever thought that. That's, that's interesting, though. I'll have to take that into account when I'm trying to break a tie. Yep, so that's my first thing. My second fantasy football point for this week is... I've seen Michael Vick ranked as the number two quarterback. And I want to say that I find that to be very, very hard to believe. I don't think he's going to be a top five quarterback this year. All right, Don, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you quarterbacks. You tell me if you like them better or worse than Michael Vick. Okay. Aaron Rodgers. Better. Tom Brady. Better. 
Peyton Manning. Better. Drew Brees. Better. Philip Rivers. Better. Okay, so that's five right there. Right, and I had maybe Matt Schaub on the list too. Eli Manning? No. Matt Ryan. He's close, but that's a running team still, I think. But he's he he's growing into a guy that is close, I think. Tony Romo? I don't know. He had such a weird year last year. So it seems like you feel most comfortable with Vic at six. Yeah, around six. With or, like Vic, if, Rivers, Breeze, Manning, Brady, and Rodgers ahead of him. Schaub close. Schaub close and Matt Ryan pretty close too. But I, I've said this before like in real life. I hate taking players after career years because you're almost guaranteed to not get that year again from them. And you're going to pay the value for that player because they just had that year. Like, what was Sean Alexander's year like after he broke the touchdown record? It, well, I don't think it was close. I think it might have been actually really bad because it fell under that Madden curse, I think. So I, I'm never a fan of paying. It's buying high on guys. I, I, don't, I don't like to do it. Um, I'd much prefer a guy, like I said, like Breeze might be really undervalued this year because he had an uneven year. Like you said, he threw a lot of interceptions. A lot of interceptions, yep. So he might be undervalued. Manning is a steady Eddie. I'd rather have him just because he's always good for three touchdowns and a pick or whatever a game. But, yeah, I don't, I don't like guys after off career years, and I, I think Vic is going to – teams figure him out too, it seems like. Now defensive coordinators have had a whole year to in an offseason to figure him out. And plus with John Beck in the division, you know, you kind of got to figure out John Beck's going to be probably the best quarterback in that division. <laughs> All right, my uh, – I guess this is thing number four. I could make a case that if you're in a 10-team league, all 10 players should be running backs in the first round. Hear me out. Adrian Peterson, Arian Foster, Chris Johnson are all guaranteed top four picks at worst. Yeah. Ray Rice, Jamal Charles is a guy you love. Ray Rice is a weird guy too still. I've seen him ranked high, and I think it was more weird the way Baltimore used him. I think he was underused. Sean McCoy, Maurice Jones-Drew, Richard Mendenhall, Darren McFadden. Michael Turner being number 11. Those are 10 guys that I think should all be first-round picks. I would not go into this year's draft with an eye on a wide receiver or a quarterback in the first round. I want to get one, if not two, if I can, of those top 11 running backs because number 12 is Peyton Hillis or Ryan Matthews or Noshan Moreno or maybe Frank Gore and Steven Jackson. So I really want and another guy who is kind of off the radar right now only because he doesn't have a team is D'Angelo Williams. Yeah, Ahmed Bradshaw doesn't have a team necessarily either, does he? No, I don't think he does. But D'Angelo Williams is the better player, obviously. Right. So I want to walk away from the draft with Peterson, Foster, Johnson, Rice, Charles, Forte, McCoy, Drew, Mendenhall, or McFadden. So if you could pick your draft position this year, are you still picking number one? No. Probably number Three. No, I'd probably pick probably three, and I'd take who's ever left from Peterson, Foster, or Johnson. If I got to pick my pick, I would pick three just because then it gives me a better position on the way back and a more likely chance to pick up a, a Turner. You know, because I just feel like running backs is deep at the top this year, but there's a huge drop off. Yeah, right. Last year, it seemed like there was. A lot of like after the first maybe two or three running backs, there was a lot of risk. Yeah, last year it made a lot more sense to go wide receiver, and that's why I included this this year. Last year you might have been in a draft with three or four wide receivers picked in the first round. Right. I think Andre Johnson is probably the only wide receiver I'd consider this year in the first round. But he's a big question mark too. 
Just as far as he's always hurt, he always misses games. He's such a stud, though. No, I right. Yeah, you know, he's such a stud. I I would pick him. And wide receiver is silly this year because there's players like Hakeem Nix who are legitimately top five, top six receivers. He's a scary guy. Too. There's you know, a lot of guys that, like, with not much track uh, a history of it. Like, is Jamal Charles is good? We'll get to that in a second. Right. So my bottom line number four thing is. If I was going to put it in one sentence, draft a running back in the first round. And that's not necessarily breaking any huge ground fantasy football-wise. But as opposed to last year when there were three to four wide receivers or quarterbacks picked in the first round, I think this year more than any, it's very important to make sure you get one of the top ten running backs. That's what's fun about being in certain leagues because you know there's a guy out there that really wants the best quarterback. So you know right. you're going to get one there's of those There's Manning guys. guys. There's Manning guys. Right? Yeah. Like your brother's a big Manning guy. Vic guys. Yeah, there's yeah. Vic guys. There's probably Breeze guys. I bet there's going to be Aaron Rodgers guys this year. For sure, yeah. You know, because he's just such a stud. But all right, the way we're going to close this segment out each week is we're going to take two guys that are really close and we're going to make a case as to why we think we prefer one over the other. This week we're... We're going to do Jamal Charles versus LaShawn McCoy. Don is going to represent Jamal Charles, make a case for why he would draft him. I'm going to make a case for LaShawn McCoy. Go. Jamal Charles, to me, just passes the eyeball test. Uh, I had him on a team or two last year, and it made me really hate Thomas Jones. I guess the big question mark with Jamal Charles is: Did he do what he did because of Jamal Charles or because of Thomas Jones? I mean, he didn't have. I'm trying to pull up his stats here real quick. Jamal Charles only had 230 carries last year, which is amazing. But he averaged 6.4 yards a carry, ended up with 1,400 yards, only five touchdowns. Uh, but he's a home run threat every time. I think he does what Chris. He gives you what Chris Johnson gives you. Maybe not as many catches. But he's just that home run hitter. Anytime he's on the field, he's anytime he touches it, he could take it to the house. Last year was obviously a breakout year for my guy, Lashawn McCoy, as your guy. Uh, a similarly low amount of carries, 207 carries last year for 1,080 yards, seven touchdowns. He's also a guy who's good out of the backfield. He catches some passes, and he can make plays from anywhere on the field, which you really like about him. And last year, his receiving stats were 40, no, that was two years ago, 78 receptions for 592 yards. So, especially if this is a PPP league, PPR or PPR league, right. my guy is the guy. Just because those extra 78 points are going to be huge compared to what, about Charles 40? Charles hideous. Yeah, yeah four, about 40 45, catches, 45. 45. Three TDs. Okay, so you got about a 30-point edge there. One thing that you could say is against McCoy is that Andy Reid loves to throw. right. And also, his quarterback is going to steal some yards because he loves to run. But I like the upside to McCoy. I like that he's done – he averaged 5.2 yards a carry last year. He doesn't need a lot of carries to get points. I love the receptions, the receiving yards. He also had two touchdowns out of the backfield. That's nine receptions. And another thing I like about him is because he isn't used 40 times a week, he can be a little bit more durable. He's had a couple of injuries in his career in the first two years. I know he's maybe dealt with a hamstring here or there. But it's nice to know that he's fresh. He's only had about 360 carries in his NFL career. So I think he's got a lot of legs left. Yeah, I'm sure Charles does too. The, the scary thing again about Charles is Thomas Jones was something of a touchdown 
goal line guy. He wasn't very good at it, from what I remember watching. He wasn't like a surefire, like he wasn't uh, Willis McGahee of two years ago stealing all Ray Rice's touchdowns from the goal line. But he still got the attempts. I I think they're both really interesting guys. I think r- with Ray Rice, they all fall into that same category. They're they're all based the clear fire number ones. But they all have other – I mean, McCoy doesn't have a running back behind him, but his quarterback is the backup running back, really. Right. And you've got Thomas Jones in Kansas City and Ray Rice. I don't know if Willis is still there, but they didn't like to use him on the goal line. But they're all guys I would love to have around four, five, six. And we talked a little bit about breaking ties earlier. And one thing that you might want to consider with LaShawn McCoy, it's a real small thing. He was born in Harrisburg, PA. Okay. He played his college football at Pittsburgh. And he plays his NFL football in Pennsylvania as well. And when it gets to the end of the year, it's nice to have a running back who's used to playing in the cold cold weather. That's true. Jamal Charles played his college football in Texas. Or, um, yeah, Jamal Charles played his college football in Texas. Texas, And is from Texas. And he might scare you towards the end of the year if he has to go and play outside. Some guys shy away from that. Some guys don't. But this is a very, very small point. But it might be something interesting to know. McCoy has played his whole NFL career in Pennsylvania, and he, you can trust him in the cold. Charles, one more thing, he's largely spit, split carries between Thomas Jones and himself. And in the three years he's been in the league, he's only missed one game. So he is somewhat durable. Granted, like I said, he isn't carrying the full load. So, But that's, I guess, what, sets, what makes him, if he did carry the full load and was durable, he'd be Adrian Peterson. I mean, maybe not the freakish size in combination of speed and size, but he's just, he would have those break. He'd be Chris Johnson, I guess is probably the better fantasy semifinals last year, 149 yards and a touchdown for McCoy. McCoy. Yeah. I guess what also might push you one way or another is McCoy's team is better. McCoy's team might have more to play for down the end of the season. The Chiefs were a division winner yesterday, last year, right? Playoff team. Huh. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. Matt Castle had that nice season, yeah. even though I hate him. <laughs> All right, so that's five on fantasy. That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk a lot of, more about fantasy football as the weeks go on. If you have any thoughts on the on the segment, how it could be better, how you know what we did right, what we did wrong, don't be afraid to email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, this was kind of a pilot run with this. Yep. We're going to get some production together to play at the beginning of it, and we're going to do it every week, maybe. you know, Definitely as it gets closer to yeah, fantasy, right. we'll do it every week. Maybe we'll start going weekly more in August than in the next couple episodes in July. But, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But uh, that's Five on Fantasy, and we're going to take a short break and come right back with our great friend John Wertheim. <laughs> Our next guest is from Bloomington, Indiana, and is a graduate of Yale University. He went on to receive a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania. His work has been published four times in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology and once in the Best American Crime Writing Series. He is the author of seven books, including the New York Times bestseller, Scorecasting, the Hidden Influences Between How Sports Are Played and Games Are Won, that he co-wrote with his friend Tobias Moskowitz. He is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and one of the most accomplished journalists in America. Making his third appearance on the show, a warm sportscaster's welcome to the great John Wertheim. How are you doing today, John? 
Oh, it's Tom Blake. And I, and I don't have a blue shoe, so if uh, I get pulled over in the middle of this interview, uh, we've got problems. But otherwise, <laughs> doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, I've been thinking about you the last couple of weeks for a couple of reasons. One is because I knew you were going to be at Wimbledon, and as that tournament was going on, I thought I'd love to talk to you afterwards because it seemed like one of the more interesting Wimbledons in a while. I'm really on both draws. Uh, Federer didn't win. Nadal didn't win. And the Williams sisters and the women's side were somewhat cruising around, uh, cruising along there. And then on the same day, they both got whacked. Uh, maybe just to start off, just kind of generally speaking, was this kind of a, did Wimbledon have a different feel than normal this year? Yeah, you know, in, in, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. I mean, I, th- I think you, you kind of hit the big storyline, which is for the first time since 2002, neither Nadal nor Federer won. I mean, the guy who did win, Novak Djokovic, has lost one match all year. So it was, you can't really call it an upset winner. But um, we had a little change there. And then women's tennis just keeps uh, it's the gift that keeps giving. No, if you, if you like parody and you like surprises, this is, uh, this is like the PGA. You know, this is like men's golf these days where it's just every every field is wide open and there's no tiger and the Williams sisters are there but they're not the Williams sisters of old and we had another another first time winner for the second straight slam um it'll be interesting I mean is this Petra fit of a one and people don't know much about her and she's not American and she's, she's very young but it, it was a pretty darn impressive performance I thought and I think now it's just sort of it's going to be interesting to see where where the story goes from here is this a new player who can really challenge and, you know, people sort of reminded them of when Steffi Graf won for the first time and or this is really sort of a new superstar or, or is this just another one of these one-hit wonders and, uh, you know, the same way Lee Na won the French Open and then didn't even survive the first week of Wimbledon is this bit of a, just another player that, that happened to get out for two weeks but, you know, is going to receive. So, two, two Tours at very different places right now, but um, it, it's going to be sort of interesting to see how the plot unfolds these next few weeks. Maria Sharapova made a great run, obviously, into the finals. I think a lot of people thought that she was going to pick this major up, and she ended up losing 6-3, 6-4 in the final, like you mentioned. How big of a, a loss is that for Sharapova? Is that one that she's, she's going to really regret not cashing in? Or do you think that the field is so wide open that she's going to be a big player in the U.S. Open and in the tournaments to come? No, I, I think you're right. I think I think this one stings. You know, you you only get so many uh, bites of the apple. You only get so many of these chances. And you know, she hasn't won a big tournament. She hasn't won a major in more than three years. And you get to the final, and you're you're playing well at Wimbledon. You've won this event before, and you know this this would really, in some ways, be kind of a defining win at this stage in her career. And then to you know, lose to a first-timer who uh, basically just kind of flat beat her and not have much of an answer. I, I think, you know, you, you can spin it as, hey, it's great, I got to the final, and uh, it was a nice run. But I, I think this is one of these events that when she reflects on her career, whenever she retires, she's going to say, boy, that's, that's one that uh, that's one that got away. Yeah. I don't know if you were there watching or not. I mean, I know you were in England, but... but I'm not sure if you were at the Federer match where he did lose. And if you were, what was it like watching him melt down like that? Almost, I mean, that's almost the first time for him to really melt down like he did, right? Yeah, no, I, I was there, and, and you're right. It was um, it, it was pretty surprising to see him go down like that. 
he's obviously lost before, but to have a two sets to love lead against, you know, a, a nice player in Sanga, but this isn't exactly Nadal. This isn't a guy that, that's really a top five player. He's sort of a nice athletic player that plays well in spurt. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not like losing it to Nadal or to Djokovic. And to see Federer get in that position and sort of turn a little passive, and it, it, was, just, it was kind of a strange performance. You were kept waiting for him to turn it on. And three sets go by, and he doesn't really impose his will on the match. And it, it, it was just, a, you know, people are kind of talking about what's his motivation level and what's the state of his game. I mean, I think his game is actually in a pretty good place. I think a lot of this is mental. And the Roger Federer of old would have just, you know, you, you hate to put it crafty, but, you know, you, you step on a guy's neck when you've got him two sets to love. You don't let an inferior player like that back into a match. And, uh, you know, in, in the next match, Sanga played Djokovic, and the two of them were diving, and they were they were really giving it their all. There were a lot of points that ended with them sort of parallel to the court, and it sort of struck me, we, you know, Better didn't dive for any balls. We didn't. We didn't really see that that extra level of effort. And I think that, you know, some players the game just kind of goes south, and then some players their body betrays them. And with better, I think a lot of it's just mental. You're just not quite sure what his motivation is because just from a from a mental standpoint, you can't lose a Grand Slam match uh, of two sets to love. You just you just have to figure out a way to win that match, and he didn't do it. Yeah, I know. I was watching it. And I was shocked to see him. It seemed like his body language, not shortly after the sets were tied, or even when he was up two sets to one, it just seemed like his body language completely changed. And it seemed like he totally opened the door to lose that match. Like you said, maybe it was mostly mental. Yeah, he, he just seemed to sort of let, let Sanger take the match to him, and the, the aggression wasn't there. You know, he had very few errors in that match, and some people took a look at the stat sheet and said, hey, wait, he, he must not have played that bad. Let's give Sanga all the credit, because, uh, you know, what can you do? You you play five sets, you only make 11 unforced errors, the other guys must be playing right. But the other way to look at that is, Federer wasn't taking his chances, he wasn't going for for a shot, then, you know, if you, you just pat the ball back to the middle of the court or you retrieve, it, it's entirely possible to play five sets and make 11 errors. If you're really picking targets and... Uh, you know, playing aggressive tennis, you'd expect more errors to creep in your game. So, I mean, again, it's one of these things where he, he's at the French Open, he beats Djokovic, best win of the year, best win he's had in a long time, and so he's had, he has this triumphant French Open and then sort of takes a step back at Wimbledon, and again, it's, it's just it's interesting to see there are a number of players, you know, Andy Roddick, Nadal now, there are, an interesting, there are a number of players where it's just going to be really interesting to sort of see what the U.S. Open, the next big plot point has for them because uh, they, they come in in a very weird place. One more question about Wimbledon, and then I do want to ask you a few on the U.S. Open, but Andy Murray is a guy, look, at, there's no shame, I suppose, in losing to Rafael Nadal, uh, but he Murray's a guy who plays with a lot of pressure at Wimbledon, and he did get the first set 7-5, and you kind of thought that he could challenge Nadal, and then it really went bad for him, losing 6-2, 6-2, 6-4, what did you see from Murray out at Wimbledon, and you know how devastating was that loss to Nadal, especially having gotten the edge after the first set there? Yeah, I mean Murray missed. Murray was he won the first set, as you said, and then he was up in the second. He missed a couple of easy shots, and then his game went south, and Nadal went crazy. I mean, Nadal played for about an hour, about as well as I think he can play, and and just ran roughshod over Murray. 
So it, it's exactly what you said. You sort of say, well, hey, I got to the semifinal. There's no team in losing to Nadal. He's a defending champion. He's, you know, um, this, this great, great player. It's not like I lost to some scrub. But I think just cumulatively, it's getting to the point with Andy Murray where it's kind of like, you know, time to kind of put up or shut up, buddy. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's been years and years now of Andy's a great player. He's going to win a slam one day. And it, it just hasn't happened yet. And so I think in and of itself, losing a semifinal to Nadal, and Nadal who's playing the way he did in the second half of the match is, is a loss you can live with. But I just think if you take a step back more generally, it's sort of like, all right, buddy, it's been, uh, you know, it's been five, six years of you knocking on the door and you haven't picked it in yet. What, what's going on? So, you know, Mur- Murray's another one of these guys where is, is he going to step it up the way Djokovic did and finally, you know, take control and get to that next level? Or is he just one of these guys who's, always going to be around, and he plays nicely, and there'll be some hype at Wimbledon, but he's just not at that grand slam winning level. We're only a couple of weeks away, maybe about a month away from the U.S. Open. What, uh, my first question is, what storylines are you most anxious to see play out as the tournament gets underway, on either side, uh, women's or men's? Well, I, th- I think the men's is just sort of this race at the top, and Djokovic has been the story this year, and he's owned Nadal. I mean, we're talking about a 5-0 five, five and o this year over Nadal. Three, three surfaces, uh, three different continents. It's really been uh, pretty amazing. So can Nadal sort of figure out how to crack this riddle? Um, it'll be interesting to see where, where is Roger Federer's game. From an American standpoint, you sort of worry about Andy Roddick, who's now lost six straight sets of tennis, and body seems to be breaking down. You're not sure for how much he has left. Um, you know, New York, it's, it's always great. I mean, it's always this sort of strange tournament where it's a huge sporting event. You know, one of the biggest single sporting events, uh, certainly in New York. I mean, it's right, you know, it's, it's not the Super Bowl, but it's on that next tier. And yet, American tennis has probably never been at a worse point. So how do we sort of reconcile this, this huge sporting event with these great rivalries, especially in the men's game? Tennis overall in a pretty good place with the fact that in the U.S., in the host country, things are really in a, in a dismal spot right now. Um, you know, on, on the women's side, I think, it's, again, are, are the Williams sisters going to come to play? Are, you know, is, is Vidova going to consolidate this Wimbledon title and sort of say enough of this uh, interchanging slam winner, I'm here and I'm here for real, or is she just kind of another pretender? Can Carolyn Wozniacki, who's been number one for basically, you know, basically most of the last 18 months, can she finally win a major? I mean, I think the women's tour right now is at a very strange place, but if uh, Serena comes back and wins, or if Kvitova can go Wimbledon and U.S. Open, maybe there'll be some uh, some order restored. Do you think that the state of men's and women's tennis in the United States is going to hurt the attendance at the U.S. Open and hurt the appeal of the tournament overall here in the United States? Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to hurt the attendance just because it's such an event. I mean, it's become like the Super Bowl. And it's like if the Kansas City Chiefs played the, uh, you know, pick a, pick a random team. If the Kansas City Jaguars. Chiefs played the, yeah, the Atlanta Falcons or Carolina, you know, the Super Bowl would still be the Super Bowl. Right. The ratings might... The ratings might not be the same as if it's, you know, Dallas and Pittsburgh. Um, I mean, I think the ratings will probably be off um, if you don't have marquee players. And I think the place where, where this tennis really gets hit are these other events. 
that, um, you know, when the tour is in Atlanta or when it's in Los Angeles or, um, you know, at the, the Cincinnati, I think that's when the absence of Americans hurts. I think the U.S. Open's at a point now where if you and I played, it would still, they'd still sell tickets just because people come for the sporting event. But I think it's those Tuesday sessions in Cincinnati where you've got, you know, a Slovenian playing uh, Slovakian and there are no Americans in sight. I think that's where, uh, that's where tennis takes it on the chin in the U.S. a little bit. What was your reaction to the news that Wimbledon's coverage was going to move from NBC to ESPN? What, what effect do you think that will have on the tournament next year? Yeah, I think it's probably a good thing. I mean, I think there, there were murmurs throughout the tournament that, that that's what was going to happen. And I think that, you know, I, I think it's at the point now where who, who really distinguishes between network and cable? I mean, yeah, nobody. you know, I, I don't know how many people say, like, hey, wait, it's on ESPN, that's cable. I don't know how to get that channel. I mean, I think, like, you know, TV is TV now. And I think that NBC really did itself a disservice with this tape delay that it made a lot of people angry. It was a lot of bad press. It depressed the ratings. And, you know, ESPN, it's not without its uh, concerns also. But I think the one thing it's got going for is nobody has to wait for a tape delay. Nobody's going to, you know, watch a match after it's decided. We're going to get live coverage. And I think that's, that's pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. Switching gears a little bit. You know, I think you might have started a trend a few weeks ago. I was doing my usual flipping through the new Sports Illustrated on my iPad at about one 1.30 in the morning on a Tuesday night, and you were in the scorecard right in the beginning there with an article on Twitter, and it seems like since then, everyone wants to write an article about Twitter, whether it's their 100 rules or 100 people to follow, or whatever the case may be. But it seems like you got in in the beginning. What was it that you wanted to kind of say about Twitter when you wrote this article? Like, what were you exactly trying to accomplish when you sat down to write about Twitter and its effect that it has on sports? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, no, I, I just thought it was time to sort of really make it clear that this is not some silly trend and this is not... Uh, you know, this is really a part of the sports scene right now. This is a tool for athletes. It makes being a fan a lot different. It makes being a journalist, you know, a media member a lot different. I mean, I think it's ultimately for good. And I think that a lot of people are like, oh, Twitter. You know, for, I mean, you, you and I are on Twitter, and sort of it's, it's become second nature, and it's, it's the, you know, part of our day. But I think for a lot of people, it's still, oh, I don't care what so-and-so had for breakfast, or I don't care what this crazy athlete tweeted that he shouldn't have tweeted. And Twitter sort of makes news when it's, you know, Richard Mendenhall or when it's Ozzy Ian or someone does something they shouldn't have said. But, um, you know, really that's not it at all, that it's become a, a way for athletes to express themselves. It's become a way for fans to get that much deeper. It's... Um, I, mean, I, th- I think one thing I really like about Twitter is that it's not, you don't have this symmetrical relationship, so you can follow, you, know, you can follow 500 people and never tweet, and that's right. perfectly okay. Um, you know, it's not like Facebook where people sort of expect you to comment and post your kids' pictures and, and be an active community member, but I, I just think that there's still, uh, among some people, you've you got to either get Twitter or you don't. And I think there's still this misconception that it's this silly tool and it's a bunch of athletes whip out their phones and Type these hundred and forty character bits about how they just eat pizza after practice, but it really is uh, it's really something a lot deeper, and it's really become 
this, this pretty uh, prominent part of uh, sports right now. There's a couple lines in the actual article that, that really got me thinking. And the first one that really got me thinking a, a bunch is you say, plus at its best, Twitter gives fans the ultimate peek behind the curtain. And I really got to think about that and thought about my own timeline and the, athlete, the athletes that I follow. And I think I have to agree that I tend to follow athletes that play for teams that I root for because I want to know stuff about my teams that I might not find out otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the other thing, too, is it sort of lets you in, you know, J- Jared Dudley. I mean, there are these guys who, you know, they'll take their Joe shots of the team playing, or here we are, you know, during our, during our warm-up. Here I am getting my ankle taped. Um, the more media that they integrate, I think that's going to happen. I mean, you know, even now we've gone from these sort of 140 character tweets to we've got photos and little videos, and I think that's only going to uh, that's only going to develop. But I think you know you're you're a, you're an upstate New York guy. You're, I mean, remember the uh, the Stevie Johnson tweet about when he dropped the touchdown pass? Yes, yep. He kind of blamed it, blaming God. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, what is that? I praise you 24 seven, and this is how you do me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, which is just a tremendous uh, piece of insight, but. You know, no sideline reporter is going to get that. I mean, that's not going to make it into too many game stories um, or, or, you know, post-game radio wrap-ups. That's, like, pretty pretty authentic, pretty striking uh, media right there. And if it's not for Twitter, I don't think we'd get, we'd get an insight like that. I mean, that's just kind of one example. But if you follow the right athletes, I mean, there's some athletes and it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, just had a good training run. Now I'm going to cool off. I mean, there's there some athletes that still do that, but I think a lot of athletes and the one that uh, you know, the ones that have the most followers, they're they're funny and they're insightful and they give you little tidbits and uh, you know exactly. If you're a fan of the uh, the Phoenix Suns and you're following these guys, Steve Nash and Dudley, and you know, he used to be Shaq, um, you can learn an awful lot about your team that you're not going to learn going to their website or you know, reading the newspaper. You know, I've always been frustrated with this paradox that we seem to put our athletes in, where if an, a- if an athlete gives you really standard, generic answers, well, they're boring. But then if an athlete gives you very candid and honest answers, well, they're not being a team player or they're trying to start trouble or whatever. But it doesn't seem like we hold athletes to the exact same standard when they're tweeting. It's almost like we give them a little bit more freedom to be honest on Twitter. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think athletes like it because they feel like, look, this is my message. I don't have to worry about taking out of context or I didn't mean it that way, that there's no filter. But I know I, I think that's a good point. I, I think, you know, if, if, if you're way extreme, if you're Richard Mendenhall, like, there are going to be some problems. But for a lot of athletes, yeah, I, I think they tweet things that if, if they were to have said them um, in an interview, we, we might react a little, a little, uh, more harshly, but I think no. I, mean, I, I think there's a sense that hey, these these guys are having fun and good for them for expressing themselves. And you know, again, I mean, if you're if you're writing that you doubt nine eleven happened, there's going to be some blowback. But if you're sort of you know you you I generally mean, I, I have it. I have Jared Dudley on the brain right now. Um, you know, if, if he made some of those comments in an interview, he probably might get a little flack. But since he's having fun on Twitter and it's you know part of the six thousand tweets he sent out. We, uh, we tend to say, hey, it's just a nice guy having, having some fun. 
Sportscasters are here with John Wertheim. Of course, you can find him in Sports Illustrated on sportsillustrated.com, and you can find him on Twitter at John Wertheim. A couple more questions before I let you go. What has your reaction been to some of the follow-up articles that I've mentioned about Twitter? Like uh, Darren Ravel, I believe, uh, wrote an article about his 100 rules about Twitter. Do you think some people are getting a little bit too militant and too protective of the media? Or do you think that it's just a natural progression and that people need to be responsible and not to flood timelines and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't see what Darren, I, I saw he you know, gave about 50 rolls uh, six months ago. Maybe uh, he doubled it. Um, no, I, I mean, it, it, it goes both ways. Because on the one hand, uh, you know, it's sort of like Facebook. People that misuse it or people that tweet too often are, are kind of annoying, frankly. But at the same time, part of what I like about Twitter is that it's free form. And you can, I mean, even as a media member, you know, you can sort of write something funny one minute and then, write something newsy the next and put a link in the third time. I mean, I think that it, I kind of like that it's, uh, it, it's still very much, you know, that there's, there's a certain freedom of expression to it. On the other hand, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are people that um, don't realize that when you start out with, you know, you know I mean, there's a certain some fundamental faux pas that are committed to people probably ought to know that, you know, if, if you write something that's 140 characters, it's really annoying to retweet it, for example, because when you right. retweet it, you're already over the limit. Uh, so, you know, keep your tweets to 120 characters, just things like that that are probably helpful. I mean, I haven't seen what Darren wrote this time. I mean, I think it's probably good to have some ground rules. But, again, I, I like the fact that, you know, you follow Larry Fitzgerald, and it's completely different from the experience of following Jack. Well, I guess my next question is, who are your favorite follows? Who do you enjoy to follow the most? Um, oh, I don't know. I, uh, do you prefer athletes or do you prefer colleagues? I like, yeah, no, I mean, a lot, a lot of times, you know, the athletes are fun, but a lot, a lot of times, uh, you know, you're just tweeting and, and Andy Borowitz, or, you know, you know it's great to follow is uh, Rain Wilson. Okay, from, from the, the office. office, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's very funny. Um, you know, so, some people have, to, I, mean, I think that's what I like about Twitter, too, right, that you follow... You know, you follow Bill Simmons because he'll have some funny link, or you'll follow, um, you know, the, uh, for for the job. You know, you follow Richard Deitch or Sports by Brooke, and there'll be some media link. And other people you'll follow for totally different reasons. So, you know, you'll follow Andy Brandt if you want to keep tabs on NFL labor. You wouldn't follow Andy Brandt if uh, you wanted you wanted to, to laugh. You follow, you know, Rain Wilson or. Andy Borowitz or whoever for that. But, um, no, I, mean, I think that's part of the fun, too, that you sort of sit there and you've got TweetDeck going, and some people, you know, some of it's tennis-related for me, and I'll need it professionally, and others it's just complete eye candy. <laughs> so, okay, last thing. We're about uh, five weeks away from my family being a Yale family. I think I told you before, my younger brother's going to Yale to play hockey. And I talked, to, I talked to him last night, and I said, so, Ant, I'm having John Wertheim on tomorrow. You know, he's a Yale guy. What do you want me to ask him? And he said he wants to know where you dormed, and he wants to know what the first day of classes is like at Yale. Oh, man, wait, what was the first part? Where the dorm? Where did you dorm? He wanted uh, to know where you a, lived for whatever reason. I was on the old campus. Okay. 
it'll, it'll make sense to him. But, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, uh, the, the great thing about Yale, one, one of the great things is how compact it is. So he'll find his way around in, like, an hour. I mean, you, you know, you rarely have to walk more than a couple hundred yards to get to, uh, unless he's your brother a science guy. Uh, no, he's majoring in economics, I believe. Yeah, exactly. So I, I can't imagine he's going to have to walk more than 100 yards. You know, he'll have to walk a long way to get to the rink, but uh, he'll master the heart of campus where, you know, 99% of his classes are going to be. He'll, he'll you roll out of bed and you're there. Uh, I mean, it's a very compact campus. And the, uh, well, the, first day, the first week of classes is sort of chaos because everybody's shopping around and you're saying, oh, this professor looks kind of boring or... <laughs> Boy, there uh, there are a lot of smart-looking kids in this class, and it's a curve. I better uh, reconsider that. Uh, the first week of class is kind of chaotic because everybody's shopping around, and you're not really, you know, people go to 20 classes that first week and narrow it down to the four or five they want to take. So tell them uh, he can, you know, he, he can enjoy it for a week, and then uh, then it's all business. <laughs> All right, it's John Wertheim from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. And just to be clear, his Twitter is at J-O-N underscore W-E-R-T-H-E-I-M. You're always so good to us, John, and we really appreciate it. And can't wait to talk to you again soon. All right, thanks. Thanks, buddy. Huge thanks going out to John Wertheim making his third appearance here at the Sportscasters. Can't thank John enough. One of the class guys in all of journalism. Brilliant guy. Could be a lawyer, Don. He's got a law degree. And he's, he's writing about sports. Tells you the power of sports. And he's a, he's a fantastic journalist. But we're going to actually do things a little bit different today. We're going to do pick four right now. And then we're going to have another interview that's going to kind of close out the show for us. The, the third interview is with a guy named Kirk McHale. The third interview is with a guy named Kirk McHealhern. Fuck. <laughs> Start over or do you want to? No, we can fix it, right? It's just going to be, I'm going to say the, the next interview is with. Yeah, okay. let's start over. Okay. Oh, we get the name right first before we start over. Kirk McElhern. McElhern. That's what it is. All right, I'm ready. All right, episode number 31 of the Sportscasters roll it on here today. I want to thank John Wertheim for his time out in New Mexico. John's always in the weirdest places when we talk to him. Yeah, he was driving to Dallas or something yeah, like that. Yeah, this time he's driving in New Mexico. Actually, when I first called him, he said, you got to call me back in three minutes. I'm in the mountains. <laughs> but uh, thanks, John, for that. We really appreciate it. And uh, here's where we're going to go from here. We're going to do pick four right now, and that usually closes the show. But we have a, a special interview with a guy named Kirk McElhern. 
And Kirk is a senior writer at Macworld, which is a magazine devoted to Apple products, Macs, iPads, iPods. And originally, I was just going to do 15 minutes on Mac stuff, but we got talking. And Kirk lives in the French Alps. And basically, the first 15 minutes of the interview is just talking about the Tour de France. And if you're interested in cycling or in the Tour de France, you definitely want to check out the interview with Kirk. He talks a lot about some firsthand experiences he has had with the race going literally right by his house. And then we do do about 10 minutes of talk about the new Apple operating system, which is coming out called Lion. And we talk about some iPad apps and have a little bit of fun that way. But I figured if you're not into it, you can kind of end the podcast like you normally do with pick four and then just wait for next week. But if you are into it, you can just keep listening and you can hear my interview with Kirk. So that's the way we're going to go from here. As for pick four, I had a great week last week. I went three and one. I won the all-star game. My thing, the NL over the AL is good for two years in a row now. Uh, I had the game of the week correct, the U.S. over France. That was a three to one victory, the U.S. women. My pitcher was Tim Hudson of the Braves. He beat the Nationals 11-1. And my only loss was way off. I picked that Andrew McCutcheon would win the All-Star Game MVP. I'm not sure he played in the game. <laughs> uh, if he did, I didn't notice him. Don, unfortunately, went 1-3 again. Hideous at this. Winning only the game of the week, USA over France. Uh, he lost his White Sox over Detroit. The worst start of Justin Verlander's season uh, is an 8-2 loss. He lost his winning pitcher, Dan, his pitcher, Dan Heron, did not win. He lost to his former team, the A's, 5-3. And Alex Morgan almost scored the game-winning goal, yeah. almost had the game-winning assist, ended up with neither. So as we stand now, I am 56-53, and 53, and Don, you are 52-59. and 59. Boo. All right, the game of the week this week is Wednesday, tomorrow at 345 Eastern. Uh, that is the Dodgers at San Francisco, Kershaw versus Lincecum. I will take San Francisco and Lincecum at home. I love this matchup because it is a opening day matchup, and my bold prediction that day was that Kershaw and Lincecum would combine for 15 strikeouts or more. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. They ended up with 12, so pretty close. But I love the game. Kershaw is 10-4 with a 2.88 ERA. Lincecum's 8-7, but with a 2.99 ERA. Plenty of strikeouts. Two great pitchers. I'm going to take Kershaw and the Dodgers. Why not? All right, my host choice this week. I'm going to try it again just because I'm going to take the Pirates at Wednesday at 12.35 over the Reds. Karsten's is starting. He's got an 8-4 record with a 2.34 ERA. And... Uh, I gotta break the snide. Every time I pick the pirates, one way or another, I'm wrong. So I'm just trying to break that curse. My host choice is the Phillies, but really I'm picking Cole Hamels, who's been great this season. He's 11 and five with a 2.71 ERA over the Padres, who are picking Corey, pitching Corey Lubeck, who's three and three with a 2.57 ERA. That game is Friday, July 22nd at 7:05 p.m. Eastern. Phillies over the Padres. My winning pitcher this week is going to be Jared Weaver of the Angels. He's 12-4 and with a 1.90 ERA. Pitches Thursday at 3.35 at home against the Rangers, who, has a, who have a 10-3 and pitcher, Wilson, going with a 3.11 ERA. C.J. Wilson, yeah, all-star a game. Of, a lot of great pitchers. It's amazing this year. Uh, my winning pitcher, I'm going to go with uh, another Hudson, Dan Hudson. Plays for the Arizona Diamondbacks. I was watching... I was watching baseball on Sunday. I was watching the Major League Baseball Network, and they were just flipping from game to game. And Dan Hudson is a great hitter. He hit a home run. He had another hit in the eighth inning, 
that scored two runs. His team ended up winning the game 5-1. to one. So I'm going to stick with the Diamondbacks and Dan Hudson. He's 10-5 with a 3.56 ERA. I'll pick them to beat the Rockies, who are throwing a struggling Aaron Cook, who's 0-5 with a 5.82 ERA. That game is also Friday at 940. My bold prediction, which is always money, so take out any savings you have, <laughs> go to Vegas and drop it on this, is that Kevin Cobb will be an Arizona Cardinal and D'Angelo Williams will be a Dallas Cowboy come the next podcast. The D'Angelo Williams part is obviously the more bold of the two. That would picks. be an interesting backfield to pair D'Angelo Williams with Felix, uh, Felix Jones. Jones. That would be exciting. I would like that. That's a good fit for him. My bold prediction, this is way off the cuff. But 11 o'clock on Saturday, if you have HBO, you'll be able to watch it. It's a boxing fight. Super Zub Judah, he is a plus 350 to defeat the favorite, Amir King Khan Khan. And I'm going to pick Judah, Judah? To, uh, to defeat him. I've heard of him before. Maybe, yeah, he's, maybe he's past his prime he's or a something. Mi- he's a minus plus 350, according to Bodog.com. Uh, Khan is a minus five fifty, which means you have to bet five hundred and fifty dollars to win a hundred. Wow! So he's a basically a five and a half to one favorite. So I'm going to take the dog here. I figure it'll be fun to watch. Sure. Give me a reason to watch boxing. Give me a reason to do something besides hang out with Tammy on a Saturday night. <laughs> Saturday, honey, I'm working. That's you know right. what I mean? What That's can right. you do, baby? I gotta watch this. I gotta watch this fight. So uh, that'll be great. So normally we cue the hip here and we end the show. That's right. But we're not going to do that. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Kirk McElhern from Macworld.com and Macworld Magazine. And then the show is just going to kind of end. So we will be back next week with Ben Nicholson-Smith. We're going to talk Major League Baseball trade deadline next week. And hopefully we'll have some cool stuff to announce as well. So we will be back next week. Oh, and if you see Jabari Greer, tell him we're looking for him. Jabari. <laughs> Where are you, buddy? <laughs> All right, so we'll be right back with Kirk. Red and white, blue suede shoes. Our next guest is originally from New York City. And earned a master's degree in applied linguistics at Ashton University, located in England. He writes about Macs, iPads, iPods, iTunes, books, music, and more. He has written several books, most of which serve to educate users on various Apple software and a pocket guide to podcasting. He is a senior contributor to Macworld and writes for many other websites and magazines, including iLounge and Tidbits. He also writes about a wide array of topics on his blog, Kirkville. Today, he lives in a small village in the French Alps. I have yet to confirm if it's the same village where Andre the Giant was born. A warm, sparked casters, welcome to Kirk McElhorn. How are you doing today, Kirk? Let's get this music down a little bit. Grateful Dad, thank you for that. How are you doing okay. today, Kirk? I'm doing good. Um, uh, th- this is kind of interesting to be on a sports podcast. Yeah. I'm not a sports person, um, but it was your idea. It and was. I'm game. Here's the thing. I have maybe some people would call an unhealthy, maybe this is about the fourth year, a somewhat unhealthy obsession for Apple and their products. And it kind of all started with the first iPhone that I purchased, which was the iPhone 3G. So I guess the second iPhone that they released. 
Right. And since then, I've t- totally converted. I have an iMac. I think I might have told you my setup, but I have an iMac. The uh, I have a 24-inch iMac, the first one that came out that was 3.0 gigahertz. Mm-hmm. I have the brand-new MacBook Pro, 15-inch, uh, top of the line with the processor upgraded. I have the mm-hmm. iPad 2. And I had the iPhone, so I'm I'm pretty geared up here. And I wanted to have you on the show because there's so much going on in the world of Mac, and many of our listeners, in the world of Apple, I should say, and many of our listeners are similar to me, as in they really enjoy Mac products. Many of our listeners listen on their iPods or their iPads. Uh, apps like Instacast or Downcast are popular ways to get the podcast. And of course, many people subscribe on iTunes. So I thought it might be fun to spend about 15 minutes in somewhat of a slower uh, sports time, admittedly, with it only really being baseball, football not quite going yet, uh, to talk a little bit about Apple and all the things that are going on and coming up. Well, before we get to Apple, slower sports time, I'll have you know that tomorrow afternoon, about five kilometers from my home, the Tour de France is going to be whizzing by. Tell us Um, a little bit about your experiences with the Tour de France. I did have that written down. Yeah, so I live in a village in the French Alps, and I've been living here for 11 years now, and we're on a road that leads to one of the climbs that they take often. So every two or three years, the Tour de France comes right in front of our house. Um, This year, they're going slightly different routes, so they're down the road a bit, about five kilometers away. Um, They finished this afternoon in a town about 45 minutes from us, so tomorrow they're going to take off, go by us. Go north, then go over to Italy. Thursday, they're going to come back, and they'll be, again, about 15 kilometers from us going over. It's going to be the most brutal day of this year's Tour de France with three really terrible climbs. One of them, um, let's see, 2,750 meters. I guess that's about 10,000 feet. Um, The weather here is cold and rainy, and there's likely to be snow up there. So you can imagine what it's going to be like. The weather there is cold, huh? We're about 90 degrees with 80% humidity in Buffalo. Yeah, th- this is unseasonably cold. I mean, here we are in the end of July, and at lunchtime today, it was just above 50 degrees. Oh, I'd do anything to be in that kind of weather right now. <laughs> I'm not a heat guy. So let's No, ta- neither, neither am I. I'm very happy to have it. But you, you have to admit that for the Tour de France, when they get up to these altitudes um, with temperatures like that, it can be very, very difficult for them. Absolutely. Now, here's the thing that's always bothered me about the Tour de France is it's hard to get behind any of the stars because it seems like the sport itself always wants to vilify the stars with the drug testing. And, you know, it seems like every winner goes, especially the American winners, uh, um, Lance Armstrong and the other guy who actually had the title taken away, whose name is escaping me for some reason right now. Uh, Tyler, Tyler, Tyler. No, not Tyler. Um, see, I can't remember either because he had it because he was stripped of his thing. Yeah, do you struggle with that aspect of the sport? Just the. Well, I think there's two things you need to consider. One, yes, it's very disturbing. But on the other hand, they do an awful lot more testing in cycling, in pro cycling, than they do in American football or baseball or soccer pretty much anywhere. Um, I I think it was just in the New York Times. No, Time Magazine this week, I saw a table showing the number of home runs at this time of the season in baseball, the the five top home run hitters. And there's something like a difference of 10 between this year and 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah, it's way down. They're saying basically people aren't doing steroids because there's been testing and prosecution. Right. So it's much more visible with a sport like pro cycling because it's it's probably the most physically demanding sport 
that exists. Um, it's a sport that goes into a lot of different countries that have a lot of different laws. So, you know, what happens in France is one thing, and then what happens in Italy is a little different, and then Spain is a little bit different. Um, above this, you've got an umbrella organization, the UCI, that's the cycling sort of uh, federation that tries to organize this, that's not respected in every country. It's a very complicated thing. But when you've got people who are doing 3,000 kilometers on, on a bicycle in three weeks, um, you know, it's hard to think that they don't have some sort of assistance. Right, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your experiences as a spectator of the race. Now, when they come whizzing by your house like that, you're able, I'm sure, to see all the cyclists. So you've been there as Lance Armstrong has actually swooped by your house then? We have. And in fact, one year, this goes back four or five years, um, our, our house is on a, the, the road they come is on a slight slope. I don't know. It's, you know, a few percent. It's steep enough that I would have trouble cycling up it. Um, and these guys obviously don't. You, they just pedal right up. But so with the years that they come up the road, they go slow enough that you can actually see them. They go in, I don't know, 15 miles an hour, maybe 20 miles an hour. But the years they come down, they've got momentum and they're going maybe 50 miles an hour. And so there was once about five or six years ago, maybe it was the fifth time that Lance won, when the entire U.S. postal team was at the front of the pack coming down the road. It was glorious. Mm -hmm. um, Lance was, was already in the lead. This was near the end of the race. There were a few days left. Um, this might have even been, you may have seen the, the, the famous um, clip, uh, this might have been the day that this one racer fell in front of him and Lance had to ride across a field. Yeah, I do recall that, actually. They they actually went by that same place today and, and on TV here. Obviously, they mentioned it. They you know reminded. They, they called it the um, Boloki Curve. Boloki was the name of the guy who fell and, and broke his pelvis there. Um, but it, it's when they come down the hill, it's extremely fast. When they come up, you have time to see them and you cheer them on. It's It's probably the most popular sport, popular in the sense of being a people sport that you can imagine because it's free. Anyone can go out on the road and these are all roads that you and I drive on and walk on. And all of a sudden you get 150, 200 cyclists coming up with the whole support system. I mean, there's these advertising floats that come before them. There's team cars after them and motorcycles and police. I mean, it takes about an hour between the advertising floats that come about an hour before and then the whole thing with all the racers if they're together all the team cars and all that to go by um it happens very quickly you, you watch them for a minute or two um if you're late enough in a stage and, and they're not in one big pack you maybe see them for a little bit longer but it's pretty quick you go down you meet people you talk and say yeah i remember and you know 1980 uh, 1985 so and so won by three seconds or you hang out, you know, and then it comes by and everyone says, have a nice day, and that's it. It's, it's a pretty interesting experience. It's something that, you know, everyone should see once if they can. A little perspective. So you've been here, you've been in the United States for some of the biggest sporting events. What could you compare the Tour de France to as a spectator sport in <sighs> France as it would be here in the United States? The, the only th I've been living in France for 25 years. Um, the only thing that I can remember in my sporting history would be something like the U.S. Open at the old Forest Hills. 
Um, when I was young, I would buy a, I don't remember what it was called, but you, you'd get a sort of general admission ticket that would let you walk around and see anything but not sit in the, the numbered seats or whatever. And on the busiest days on the weekends early in the tournament, you'd get all these people, and you'd get a lot of people, and they'd go from match to match, um, and you'd have this sort of popular fervor, as opposed to people sitting in their seats, um, you know, with, with something that's really a spectacle made for television. I mean, the defense is perfect for television because, you know, I think it's broadcast in 180 countries. They've got these motorcycles with cameras. They've got helicopters and all this, and you see the countryside and all. Um, but I think American sports, even, even 25 years ago when I left, had become so, I don't know, there was so much money. Yes. It, it it's a different thing. I I do have a lot of um, sports attending experience. When I was young, um, my father and my uncle had season tickets for the Jets. Um, for a few years, my parents got season tickets for the Rangers. Um, when I was a teenager, I played ice hockey and went to hockey camps in the summer that three Rangers players ran. Um, it was Brad Park, Roger Bear, and Gilles Villemure. So Very when nice. I would go to the games, they would like say hi and all this, and it was really cool. Um, but um, the the difference here is that it's just a sport where you get all these people lining the roads and partying and doing barbecues and having lunch and all this and families, um, and and it's a different kind of atmosphere. Very interesting. So when will uh, this year's race? Who is leading? Uh, is is it to the point now where the leader is? going to be the winner or are they Not going to all. have a race no. to the finish in, in fact, the, the leader is a French guy named Vokler um, he's been leading for a few days but he doesn't have the strength in the mountains to hold on um, today Alberto Contador who's won the last couple um, tried to attack but really didn't get far he picked up a little bit of time and tomorrow and Thursday are terribly difficult stages so it's going to be decided probably by Thursday Whoever's in the lead on Thursday um, is very likely to, to win the, the overall. And anyone who's listening and uh, is interested in seeing how this plays out, I, I am almost certain that it does air on Versus in the United States, so you should be able to, to follow the race there. I think so, but they don't show the whole thing. Here, the public TV basically shows most of every stage, and on the weekends they show the entire thing. Very um, cool. So it's, it's their event. One I mean, commercial an hour, you know, real public TV. Yeah, abs- uh, that's great. That's very interesting. So, all right, let's switch gears. Let's talk a little bit of Apple here. Um, Lion is potentially hours away. Are you looking forward to Lion? Um, what parts of Lion are you most looking forward to? And is there anything about Lion that makes you not all that excited to upgrade to it? Well, to be real honest, I can't really say that much about it because I'm under NDA um, since I have a developer account. Developer account. Uh. Um, there are obviously certain things that are public, um, things that Apple has already announced. And it, it's interesting because in, in the past, if you violated an NDA, you really risked your access. And now, as I'm sure you've seen, there's tons of websites that are talking about it. Yeah, um, As you say, we're potentially hours away. We're recording this on, Tuesday. well, it's Tuesday evening for me, Tuesday afternoon for you. And a lot of rumors suggest that it's going to be out Wednesday. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things. I, you know, they're, they're 
Some of the things interesting for me as someone who works with my Mac professionally is a feature called versions, which saves different versions of your documents as you've saved them. So if something happens all of a sudden, um, it gets deleted or corrupted, you can go back to all the previous versions, um, like backups, but there could be a version every time you save, so it could be every few minutes. Um, let's see, applications can do auto-saves, which is another good thing. Yes. Um, full screen. Applications can, can have a full screen mode, which, depending on the size of your screen, may or may not be a good thing. Um, if you've got a laptop, it could be a good idea. I've got a 27-inch iMac, so most apps full screen would just, you know, you wouldn't want a browser to be that big. Right. Um, but... I, I think what what we're seeing that's very interesting is a real change in strategy here. Apple's selling this for thirty dollars. The last um, operating system update they did was Snow Leopard, which was sold for thirty dollars as well. But it was considered to be a sort of minor upgrade and not a major upgrade. Right. Before that, we were paying I think one hundred thirty dollars for previous upgrades. Um, and that's for one license. Whereas yeah. this will be, you'll be able to put it on multiple computers that you right. use your account on. Right, and that's the right. second big thing, that it's going to be sold only through the Mac App Store, which, first of all, means no disks um, by download, but as you were saying, any Macs that you have linked to that account, you can install this on legally. Now, obviously, most people, there, there's no serial number. Um, there's never been a serial number for Mac OS X, so you could have done that anyway, but this makes it you know, a legal process. Also upcoming is the 5.0 for the iPad and iPhone and also the iCloud. What can you tell us about iCloud? Because I think that's the one thing from the previous keynotes at the WWDC that I maybe understood the least. Yeah, no, iCloud, they've, they've made a number of announcements. It's pretty clear what's going to happen. Um, so already you can access um, certain types of files that you purchased from the iTunes store. Um, and you can access them on different devices. So you buy an application, you buy an app on your iPhone, um, you can access it directly from your iPad or from your Mac to, to be able to download it right away. If you buy a song on your Mac, you can download it right away onto your iPhone. Um, so you can do this with apps and songs and books, ebooks. Um, now, what's going to change is this service where iTunes is going to work in the cloud. Um, basically, you'll be able to do something, you'll be able to put your music into the cloud, but you won't have to actually upload it for most of your music. Um, what's going to happen is they're going to have a matching service, and iTunes is going to scan your music library, and it'll say, well, hey, you know, you've got these songs, and they're already up on our cloud, so you don't have to upload them. However, here's a bunch of songs you don't have, that we don't have in our library, so you will have to upload them. Right. Now, after this, you'll be able to access the songs. You won't be able to stream them, but you'll be able to download them on other devices. Um, this is interesting for people who don't have a lot of music. Unfortunately, that's not me. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the music I have um, is probably going to be stuff that they don't have in their libraries. I'm, I'm very much... I mean, we opened with The Grateful Dead. I'm a Grateful Dead fan, and I have been for, heck, 35 years. Um, but I'm also a big classical music fan. And a lot of the classical music I buy on CD is from smaller labels. So there's a lot of stuff they won't have. And there's a limit. I think you can only put 20,000 tracks. And my current iTunes library is about 70,000. So you know, I'd never be able to put it all up there anyway. Um, but it's interesting for most music users to be able to 
basically share that music easily with their other devices. Give us three apps that you use on your iPad that you can't live without. I'm thinking words. Words with friends is something that I play regularly because um, I've I've got a lot of um, friends who are colleagues and you know other writers and all that, and we're all word people, and so we play this. You know, it's it's a turn thing where you play your turn. And right. Then, yeah. Well, you know, I, have to, I have to challenge you because I'm quite. The you player. should. You yeah, should absolutely. by all means. Um, so yeah, words with friends is something I use all the time. Very fun. Um, let's stay in the game realm. Um, and Smart Go Kifu, K-I-F-U. I'm a Go player. You know the game of Go? Yes. Smart Go Kifu is an extraordinary program because it's it's not a program that's really good for playing against the iPad, but it's a program for viewing games played by professionals. Um, it comes with like thirty or 40,000 games, um, and it's really an interesting use of the iPad, um, the, the way the iPad works. Well, I would say iBooks. Um, I do read a lot of eBooks um, mm-hmm. on the iPad. I read a lot of public domain books. There's a lot of authors from like the 19th century that I'm interested in. Um, so I go to the Gutenberg Project website and download free eBooks and load them up. Uh, I find that reading with iBooks is a little bit better than reading with the Kindle app, um, at least on the iPad. On the iPod Touch. It's a little bit different because you can't lock the orientation right. with, um, with iBooks. So if I'm lying in bed and I want to read on the iPod Touch and I sort of want to go on my side, I can't do that. Because the orientation, if, if it's not at the right angle, it's going to flip back. Right. But I think iBooks is an excellent application. Um, I think it renders text well. It gives you lots of options for sizes and fonts. Um, wh- one of the early things I, I've actually been working around books, publishing, writing, and all that for most of my career, and I had the opportunity to work with a, a very early publisher of ebooks, and this goes back to around 96 or 97. It was a French company, and they were marketing a, I think it was called the Rocket ebook reader, which was an American product, and they had some of the earliest ebooks, and I've always believed that ebooks were the future, and unfortunately, it took you know, it had to wait until Apple came out with the iPad for them to really take off. Um, I think we're seeing the extension with magazines, but I think we're seeing ebooks, uh, the popularity of ebooks on the iPad, on the Kindle, and the various other apps um, for different, you know, the Barnes and Noble app, the Borders, well, Borders just closed, so I don't know how long <laughs> that's going to last. But I think ebooks are, are definitely one of the major technological advances that we've seen in media um, in the past couple of decades. Have you checked out the daily? I did. Um, when it came out, you know, they had a free subscription for a week or whatever. I thought it was um, lamentably bad. It makes the <laughs> New York Post look like highbrow journalism. Um, of course, it's sort of the New York Post, but um, and, and you know, I didn't follow it since. I don't know if it's actually selling well. Uh, I know that they all just the people who I was in touch with, who, who were using it, just thought that you know the content was so bad. There were maybe two or three news stories, and the rest was all fluff. Yeah, yeah. We had the sports one of the sports writers, Dan Wolken, on the show, and uh, great guy. But I I feel the same way about it. It's just there's not much content there. Well, I'll, I'll have to admit there was a lot of sports content. Sports there is quite a bit. Yeah, but. But since I don't really follow American sports anymore, I just sort of flipped past it. Um, and it's true that sports is is an area where you can put 
a lot of innovative stuff. You can have, well, I don't know if you can have videos easily because you got to pay someone for them, um, but you can use animations with tables and charts and things like that. Um, and I seem to recall that they did do some stuff like that, that it was kind of interesting. But again, I didn't pay that much attention to it. One app that I've been having a great time with lately is StumbleUpon. I don't know if you've ever tried that out. It's definitely worth your time. And also, I really... I'm thrilled with the HBO Go app. Uh, HBO has basically put all of their programs on the iPad. I've subscribed to HBO, so it's free, and it's it's just fantastic. But Yeah, I, I can't get that outside the U.S. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of these things like Hulu and the CNN, who just released an app yesterday. Yep. Um, these are limited to people in the U.S., which in a way it makes sense because it's people in the U.S. who are paying for it. But, you know, what do you do if you're from the U.S. and you're traveling, then you can't access these things anymore, um, which I, ha I have to give it to Apple. Um, they don't block you. Let, let's say you have a U.S. iTunes account or App Store account or whatever. When you, when you go out of the States, if you're traveling, they don't block your access. You can still download music or movies or whatever you want. Um, once you've set up that account with an address in the country and a credit card in the country, then you can use it from anywhere. Um, all these other companies... You know, if HBO were to sell a subscription to people outside the U.S., I would think they would sell a lot of them because yeah. they do have a lot of good shows. Yeah, they have a lot of content. It's really awesome. Why don't you plug all your stuff? Tell us where we can find you, where we can read you. Tell us about your Twitter, all those things. Well, you can go to my website, Kirkville, and it's www.mackelhern.com. That's M-C-E-L-H-E-A-R-N.com. Um, you'll find me on Twitter at, at Mackelhern. Um, you'll see on my website a number of books I've written, a number of ebooks. Um, uh, take control of iTunes 10 recently. Um, you'll see me in Macworld pretty regularly because I write about iTunes and the iPod every couple of weeks, and I have other articles. I had one today about archiving your tweets. So if you ever wanted to save everything you posted to Twitter, you might want to check out this article and find some apps and some web solutions that can help you do this. Kirk, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. Thanks a lot, Steve. Take thank care. Thank you. Hey, Don. Did you ever go to a movie where you stayed past the credits and then you got to see this like really cool scene? Absolutely. All the movies do it now, it seems like, especially the ones tied to the Avengers. That's kind of what this is yes. because I said after pick four that we were going to be done for the day yeah, after that interview, yep. but I kind of forgot to say a couple things. Yep. So first, I want to thank Kirk, Kirk McElhern from Macworld. Make sure you check out his site, Kirkville. Follow him on Twitter. Good guy. And if you're like me, you're pumped for lying this week. So enjoy the upgrade. But I wanted to say that if you would like to follow us on Facebook, you can find the show www.facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can also find us at our blog. Our blog is blowing up. I started a new column called The Greatest Night in WWF <laughs> History because whenever they have a pay-per-view, they always say that it's going to be the greatest night in WWF history. So I'm never wrong no matter what wrestling event I write about. It's the greatest night in WWF history. It's true. They're not even called the WWF anymore, but so what? <laughs> uh, you can find our blog at thesportscasters.blogspot.com, thesportscasters.blogspot.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The show is sports underscore casters. Don is Don like sports. 
And I am Diversity23. So you can find us three ways on Twitter. At Sports underscore Casters, at Don Likes Sports, or at Diversity23. You're also very welcome to email us. Tell us what you thought about Five on Fantasy. Give us an idea for, or for, or for three things. Send us an email. Tell us what you want to talk with Ben Nicholson-Smith about. Don't be afraid. The email address is thesportscasters at gmail.com. And you can find all this information as well as the podcast, our old podcast, and a message board that we kind of use as more of a wiki for yeah. the show. All kinds of information on there at our website, www.sports-casters.com. That's sports-casters.com. I wanted to plug one last one last website, just something that maybe you can check out. It might be more relevant in the future. It might not be. But it's a, it's a website called The Score. You can find it at www.thescore.com. Puck Daddy Radio is hosted there. They also have some other podcasts and some cool blogs. They also have a really cool iPod app, which does scores, and you can find their blogs on there. They're called The Score, Sirius XM Channel 158. And there's a couple other... I think there's a TV station associated with it, uh, FM radio station in Canada, and of course the app. Give them a like, give them a follow, and uh, we'll be back next week with uh, Ben Nicholson-Smith to talk about the Major League Baseball trade deadline. Don, cue the hip. All right.